I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about my sling and stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, and all the things that go with it. Is my mic on? Someone confirm for me. Walt will tell you in the chat. Tyler and Eli won't tell me in the booth if my mic's on. Been trying to talk to him for about five minutes. Guys, do you have graphics with win totals? Walt will let you know. Somebody confirm for me. He's in the chat. He'll let you know. He'll tell you if if we're on or if we're just talking to mute. Hey, welcome in. Don't adjust your sets. We're probably muted. We're live on YouTube. Appreciate everybody that is uh, watching with us in the chat, including you, Walt. But it is time, Sam. It is time. We got to be on point here. We got to be on point because we're doing eight teams per show. It's season preview time, starting with the AFC and the NFC North. So we have to somehow not, no rants. We got to give every team exactly 30 minutes. Okay. But before we do that, I have to. I mean, 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, start off at one. Good luck. Start off at one. We'll see where we get to. Four hours. Um, We have to, before we do that, divert the show immediately and at least mention this Johnny Manziel documentary, which everybody must go see. It's incredible. No, we want to make it a watch-along. Don't well, maybe watch we'll, it Maybe until we can we... do that as well, but we have to at least talk, mention it up front. Would you watch the Johnny Manziel documentary with us if we did a watch-along? Sam's, you've started, you've watched the whole thing? I, I, yeah, I finished it. Um, but we want to do a watch-along potentially as a show. It's genuinely incredible. Yeah, his agent... Apparently follows you. The guy whose features prominently. EB. I'm going to get EB on the show. Hopefully. Features prominently so, in the documentary yeah. and breaks out some phenomenal revelations about the whole Johnny Manziel story, particularly surrounding you know the draft process and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, if he would if he would show up and watch that thing along with us, that would be pretty incredible. Um, but either way, you need to watch that thing. It is amazing. Some of the stories in it. Yeah, we'll try to uh, we'll try to get that get that going with uh, with Eric Burkhart and get him on the show potentially and uh, discuss the Johnny Football documentary, which may be stealing a little thunder from Hard Knocks, I mean, season thirty. I don't know if it, it is. is right. I mean, there's, there's enough room in the world for more than one piece there of is. football there content is. in there August. Is. There is, but not for season previews. There's only one place to get your season previews. Forget all those other shows. Forget our friends at the Athletic and the Ringer. And Mina, even though I did her AFC North preview with her. Forget everybody else's previews. This is the place for your season previews. So we're going to be sprinkling them in over these next few weeks where they make sense. Sounds good. But first, the PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow. It's Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions that helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. All right, man, you ready to go? Let's go. In... um, this is evergreen content, as they say. People are going to be watching this over the next few weeks. But in very specific today news, we are going to Packers and Bengals practice. Yes. Um, two teams who we will cover on the show today, so that's fitting. But we'll be going to live practice. We'll have some live takes all over Twitter and everything. And I've got my depth charts here. I've got them 
I got these laminated. Laminated depth yeah. charts. So you got the Packers offense and the Bengals defense on one side. And you flip it around, you get the opposite. I can't wait till we get there and they're going to hand you a loose sheet of paper with the depth chart and you're going to go, no, no, I've got my own. I've got my own. And yeah. it's, it's got, it's better. It's, and mine's not going to be a loose sheet of paper, you know, in the I, wind, flying around or anything. I've got it ready to I go. I have my own and it's laminated and annotated. I don't need your If you want, I can get you one. I can stop by the house and uh, laminate one for you real quick if you want to. No, I feel, I feel like I would feel too. I'd be too self-conscious. I would personally feel like an asshole if I was walking around with one of those. Now that doesn't mean you should. You know, we each each to our own. I'm just saying that I personally would feel like a dick. What if I dick. need to call a play? What if I get into the huddle and you gotta you cover your mouth to make sure nobody reads your lips and make sure that the QB hears you well? That also is a benefit. I forget who the coach was. Who was the coach that had like the really small play card and it looked. Sort of outsized and his. Well, Mike Leach had like a napkin. Yeah. Uh, Dick Jaron back in the day used to have this like little book. Yeah. I don't know how he fit his. Right. But there's somebody out there, I forget, with like a normal looking one. It's just this size, right? That's how that looks Cliff? like in your hand, even though oh, it's I see. like a I've got like an index paper. card. Yeah. I was taking a sip. That was the awkward silence. All right. It's time to go. Baltimore Ravens, they're up first. So, what we're going to try to do now, can, you, can someone in the booth confirm? Do we have win totals up on the screen? Do we have win totals for the Baltimore Ravens? Look at that. Perfect. We have mm-hmm. projected wins. It. It's our projected <laughs> wins, but we don't have like uh, the, uh, the betting line necessarily. But this is fine. That's mm-hmm. fine. We got PFF projected wins. We got their team grades and everything. So let's start with the Ravens. We're going to try to keep it to 15 minutes per. Ravens coming off a 10-7 and season. Lost in the playoffs to the Cincinnati Bengals with Tyler Huntley under center. Sam, what are you looking for this year for the Ravens? What are the biggest storylines coming in here? Well, first of all, you know, somebody's got to put a clock on this and see how close to 15 minutes we end up with our All right, we'll uh, do signals. If I, say, if I hold up a two, it means we get two minutes left. Subtle. Yeah. 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 It's, it's real code there. You'll know. Yeah. 15 uh, minutes starts now. <laughs> I mean, obviously with the Ravens, the thing to watch is what Lamar Jackson is going to look like in a new offense. And they've kind of talked about what it's going to look like. It's going to look like Louisville offense. It's going to look like three wide receivers, spread offense. Like it's going to be more of what he ran at college, not what he ran for his entire time in the NFL. Ironically, Lamar Jackson might be one of the few quarterbacks ever to run like a more pro-style offense in college than he did in the NFL. Like he reversed it. He ran a pro-style offense at Louisville when everyone thought he was running some crazy, you know, college thing, just because that's the way you assume athletic quarterbacks uh, survive at that level. And then when he got to the NFL, they actually built like a custom bespoke weird offense to suit his skill set. It's the exact opposite of the way it usually works. So all this sort of hand-wringing of, oh, can Lamar function in a real NFL offense? I mean, he, he was doing that at Louisville. I don't think it's a real NFL. I mean, it's just uh, right now it's just going to be a new Offense. There was definitely a point. Look, the it's Ravens, going to be a lot closer to most other offenses than everything he's been doing so far. Yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely a point in the uh, Greg Roman era where it felt like more spread to run made sense, right? The, the, Greg Roman would, you know, it was multiple tight ends and fullbacks running around Patrick Ricard and all sorts of orbit motion and all these different things, and it always felt like the next iteration for that offense 
would be, hey, what if they spread to run a little bit more? And you actually don't have to be as good at the point of attack because now you've got even more running lanes. So I think we'll still see plenty of Lamar Jackson running like he did in Louisville, right? He had 75% of his rushing yards in college were on design runs. So again, we had to remind everybody coming out, Lamar Jackson's not just back there running around trying to you know make plays. He's a pass-first quarterback on passing plays who, when they call a design run, is an absolute force. So I think the Ravens will be able to find that balance. And then offensively, what happens with the receivers? So Rashad Bateman coming off of injury, heading into year three. Zay Flowers drafted in the first round. And of course, Odell Beckham Jr. Is this the best receiving core that the Ravens have? If you go back to the PFF archives, was it like two years ago? Maybe early 2021? There was a point where Bateman was there, Marquise Brown was there, and was it Sammy Watkins at the time? It felt like their best group at the time, early in the season. And then it, injuries hit, and it just didn't work. But this looks like, on paper, could be the best receiving core that Lamar's ever had. Yeah, I mean, should be, really, given the, the, the level that it's been at previously. You've also got what happens to a guy like Isaiah Likely, now that they're going to be running fewer two tight end, three tight end formations and more 11 personnel. Do we just kind of convert him into... A big slot? Does he end up getting yes. a similar role to Dalton Kincaid potentially in Buffalo where we just say like the the line now between a move tight end and a slot receiver has essentially been erased and you're just going to take that role for us? Um, what Zay Flowers does year one is going to be fascinating. You and I were both lower on him than a lot of people, but there were people out there that thought Zay Flowers was the best wide receiver in this class. I think that's kind of crazy, but you know the reports in camp have been phenomenal. On the other hand, he's also the type of receiver who I could imagine looks amazing in training camp, given his skill set. So generally seeing how he performs year one with Lamar Jackson in this new offense is going to be fascinating. But also, I mean, the overriding point in all this is what Lamar looks like. Like, this could easily be the single best passing season he's ever had, including his unanimous MVP season. And then the question becomes, like, what effect does this have on his rushing, which is obviously a huge part and has been the foundation, really, of the, every, like, the offense that he's run up until this point. So just that entire dynamic is clearly the most important and interesting part of the Ravens. Just to remind people about Lamar's career, you know, his, his passing grades through the year, his through the years, his MVP season, 82.5 overall passing grade. He was over 90, including his rushing. That was by far the best passing grade of his career. It dropped to 74 in 2020, 65 in 2021, and then last year a 72. Um, the passing grade doesn't sum up Lamar because of what he brings with his legs and because of what he opens up for the rest of the offense. But as a passer, he's been streaky. So since like his MVP season was out of this world pretty much from start to finish. He'd have those games where he'd drop back 25 times and throw five touchdowns. Like It was just absolutely ridiculous. He still has had flashes of that. Remember, early 2021, he was very good. And then he runs into this stretch where he's got multiple turnover-worthy plays in every single game. Last year was similar. He started off good, and then he runs into the stretch, 48, 60, 53. He's, he's been streaky. So I want to see if... You know, high level, okay, what do they do with Lamar? I think on a week-to-week -week basis, do we see more consistency? We haven't seen Lamar put together just a not, – not just a full season of health, but a full season of consistent play since the MVP year of 2019. So I want to see if the new offense helps with that.
Um, offensive line, I think, looks solid all across the board. Remember the great Morgan Moses, who they signed? The great. Five million a year. Mm-hmm. This is why I like what the Ravens do a lot of the time. Number three in PFF war, most valuable tackle last year at $5 million, a guy that was just the afterthought post-free agency signing. Those are the types of moves. Once Lamar's healthy and on the field, those are the types of moves that make the Ravens such a good organization. So the O-line looks solid. Question at left guard, solid across the board there. I think the offense will be good. Um, Running back-wise, can J.K. Dobbins stay healthy? When he's out there, he is an explosive playmaker, but even in camp right now, he's not seeing the field. Yeah, they signed uh, Melvin Gordon as well, which is a fascinating pickup for Baltimore. Like, Melvin Gordon's had a weird career, generally. Um, When he wasn't necessarily performing particularly well, he was grading very well. And then when he was performing quite well, he wasn't grading that well. But now, you know, he goes to this Ravens offense, which previously had been one of those cheat code offenses for running back production. Does that still remain the case with this new kind of further like 11 personnel style of, of offense? And does it actually, maybe it doesn't increase it, but does it actually maintain that level? Because theoretically, spreading the ball out horizontally or spreading defenses out horizontally is a really good way of generating running success. Like that's a good thing conceptually. Baltimore was already doing an incredible job, but are they actually still going to be amazing because they're spreading everybody out horizontally and Lamar is still a rushing threat and now you can hand the ball off to one of these guys? Like, how the run game works in Baltimore is going to be interesting to watch. My take is I think we're going to see similar results. Lamar Jackson will be very good. The running backs will get their high yards per carry. The O-line will look pretty good. And then the X-factor will be the receivers. How about the defensive side of the ball? for Baltimore Um, my initial impression is I don't like this side of the ball as much as I have in recent years now it doesn't necessarily but just on paper going into the year because I think on paper the last couple years Baltimore would have this really good secondary uh, including you know Marcus Peters and Marlon Humphrey and it looked like they were loaded at corner this year huge question mark at cornerback opposite Marlon Humphrey but it's not like they've been rolling with their starters the last couple of years anyway. They've had so many injuries. So on paper, I don't know if it's as good as previous years, but they should still be pretty good defensively as well. Plus you get year two of Roquan Smith in Baltimore system where he looked really good after they traded for him last year. Yeah, the Ravens defense generally I think is going to be another pretty interesting group. Um, they've got talent. They've done a decent job of backfilling in a lot of places. They've got a lot of young guys who we expect to take a step forward. You've got, you know, what does this year of David Ajabo look like, having come back from the Achilles to get on the field late last season, but it was more a sort of, that felt like just a statement to prove that he was, you know, doing it. Like, I want to get back to be on the field. Okay, yeah, but like, next year is the real thing you know what I mean like a bit like Jamison Williams last year like just getting on the field is a nice achievement a step uh, a milestone on the way to recovery but it's not like we really expect much from you that year but this is the year that you would expect him to make some kind of impact Travis Jones was a guy we we really liked a year ago didn't you know show that much year one but now this is the year you would expect him to take a step forward and really anchor the middle of that line as a disruptive uh, presence and then those linebackers like not only did Roquan Smith play really well once he got to Baltimore Patrick Queen completely turned it around when Roquan Smith arrived now was that coincidence or does the presence of Roquan dramatically affect the performance of Patrick Queen in perpetuity going forward in the same defense yeah it's a great question because um 
Roquan Smith looking completely different and having that uh, effect on everyone else. Huge story, and as you mentioned, Ojabo and just all of the pass rushers. Adafi Owe, first rounder a couple years ago, incredible athlete, hasn't really had great production just yet. But they, uh, just as much as much as I've loved the team building strategy of the Ravens from an offensive line perspective, and or you know like a Morgan Moses type of move, the edge defender strategy of not you know letting the Matthew Judons of the world walk and not really spending a ton of money and bringing in like a Justin Houston who we just talked about on the last show as a pass rush specialist I think it's been an okay strategy it hasn't been great but you need players like Tyus Bowser, Adafi Owe, David Ajabu they have they've attacked this position in volume but not with the same type of finances that other positions have uh the, the, the other teams usually do well this uh, is this is the first year where they don't really have one of those, you know, veteran um, rotational guys to sort of not necessarily take some of the pressure off. But is Melvin Ingram still out there? Almost certainly. Bring it to Melvin. Um, but to you know to, to add to the group, like Tyus Bowser is the sort of the most established veteran that they have. Four minutes remaining. Solid. Um, everybody else is young and, and unproven to some degree or, or just very young and inexperienced and needs to step up and you know make those plays unless they go out and sign a Melvin Ingram or whoever the veteran is to come in and do that but right now on paper this is the the youngest and most inexperienced edge rushing group they've had without that established like proven guarantee of you know 40 50 pressures from a guy like Justin Houston I mentioned the secondary so Marlon Humphrey once again one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL they move him outside in the slot does a lot the uh, the other corner and, and so here's what I like about the secondary three-fifths of it basically feeling pretty good Marlon Humphrey Marcus Williams who has been one of the better free safeties in the league over the last few years Kyle Hamilton who may have been a part of some of those early season coverage busts but eventually settled in as a very good mostly slot defender flying around making plays those three guys are really good the cornerback spot opposite Marlon Humphrey, though, and I guess in the slot, Rocky Sin mm. potentially there. He's had a couple okay years here and there. He's never really lived up to the top of the second round, uh, you know, type of draft status. Kevon Seymour, that's it. Like Jalen Armour Davis, Daryl Worley, they don't have much competing for cornerback too so that could be something to keep an eye on here for the and outside of marlon humphrey they're very thin on people that have played the slot as well right. certainly to a high degree it's or a, a high level group of slots unless they're saying kyle hamilton is right is manning that position and in someone else's step and as much as like kyle safety. hamilton did play a lot over the slot last year but it was much more of a you know quarters alignment as a safety covering the slot against you know specific routes and matchup concepts not necessarily like man on man in the slot against you know five foot five foot nine slot receivers like Kyle Hamilton uh, matching up one-on-one -on -one with Zay Jones in the slot or Zay uh, Flowers in the slot on every route feels like a bad matchup for Kyle Hamilton but if he's lining up you know 10 to 12 yards in off coverage in quarters monitoring you know an Isaiah Likely for example that feels better so I think he can certainly be a part of defending the slot as a general concept but not across the board like you need you also need that dedicated nickel corner in there somewhere all right do we um Eli do we have okay so I think the way the way DraftKings does these win totals they're giving you the default here DraftKings.com has the Ravens at ten and a half does that sound right? Perfect. There it is. It's thrown up there. 
Ten and a half. Now, the, DraftKings gives, gives you this ability to kind of like slide it up and down and change your odds and everything, but they'll give you the default at ten and a half for the Ravens. Now, if someone went back and tracked my picks last year, not my game picks, which we know were historically awful, mm. but even just my preseason over-unders, because I lean more positive, <laughs> I, I, I probably chose the over on for, yeah. for about three quarters of the NFL teams. Um, so please don't check me on that. Don't check my math. I'm just going to go with whatever I'm feeling at that point. I mean, I might send everybody over. They can't be worse than your actual game picks. So, you know, that's true. Let's just rock. That is and very roll. true. So we're under a minute here. Okay. On our timer. Yeah. Let's make a pick here for the Ravens over or under ten and a half. Sam. Under. Division, the AFC, like across the board, it's. Too hard for anybody to have a ton of wins unless you're like an absolute like no-brainer stud of a team. So for the AFC, I think I'm going to be leaning under for a lot of those. Oh man, it's a yeah. This is a difficult one. If if Lamar stays healthy, I think they can win 11 or 12. Oh, absolutely can. Sure. I mean, the range of outcomes for all of those teams is going to be above their win total. But I'm, my default is going to be under because there's just too many good teams in the AFC. I guess I'll go under. Just. For similar reasons, because because it's loaded, it's the AFC North, which I do think is one of the uh, one of the best divisions in football. Mm-hmm. So give me a minute here while I pick, pick this thing up. What else about the Ravens? Wrap it up. Wrap up the Ravens. Wrap <laughs> I mean, up the it, Ravens. Right? Like oh, the, the timer's going to like make a noise here. Oh, too. sweet! You like to have a buzzer when we've gone over. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I look. That offense is everything. And as much as there's a degree of worry because it's something new and going away from what has been pretty successful for them, it's also exciting because. There's the potential that Lamar has actually been trapped a little bit in the offense of Greg Roman, albeit one that probably needed to exist for him to transition the way he has. But, like, who knows when he was ready to flip over to a different offense. So over-unders 10.5. Let us know in the chat if you've got over or under for the Ravens. Speaking of DraftKings, they've launched their largest best ball tournament in DraftKings history. Right now you can enter into DraftKings best ball tournament for a shot at over $10 million in guaranteed cash prizes. Make your entry into the draft today. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the NFL season without having to worry about managing your roster, waiver wires, or anything else. To start playing best ball, download the DraftKings app using code PFF. Enter DraftKings best ball millionaire contest and snake draft your team for the season. Each week, you'll automatically rack up points from all your top scorers. No ads, no drops, no trades, no, I should have played him instead. Teams with the most points by the end of the season will have a shot to take home the $1 million top prize. So what are you waiting for? Head to the DraftKings app and sign up with code PFF and start playing best ball today. Join the DraftKings $10 million best ball tournament only on DraftKings with the code PFF. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Age and eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. All right, next up, hometown Cincinnati Bengals, where I could pull out the uh, trusty depth chart here mm. for the Bengals. Uh, the big story, of course, Joe Burrow's calf. You know, that might not be the season-long story. It's the preseason story. I wonder if, 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 he's, if he's there today, you know, you can, you can talk to him as a fellow calf injury uh, sufferer. I could probably give him some advice. Right. Yeah. I, too, have missed time. Due to the calf, mm-hmm. phantom calf. Let's start the 15 minutes. Yeah, His might not be a phantom. I saw him in pain. Right. It might hurt a little bit. Yeah, he, he limped off the field having pulled his calf. So Bengals 12-4 and four last year in a 17-game schedule somehow. <laughs> Projected wins is 11.36. Sorry, I'm just somebody. I don't know. Were they 12-4 and four or 13-4? and four? 
Or 12-5 and five or 13-4, and four, I don't remember. I mean, you just out here. Did we light, throw out the last game? Lighting up the Ravens, maybe? The production staff. This is probably how Colin Cowherd's going to go after saying that Dwayne Haskins can't win a Super Bowl. Oh, gosh. You know, there's some poor production guys getting fired at the end of that. Our, our guys won't. Our guys are great. No, well, um, that's, we, don't have the, we don't have the power to fire anybody. <laughs> but the <laughs> Bengals went to the Super Bowl in 2021 and then lost in the AFC Championship. Close game, of course, with the Chiefs on the way to the Super Bowl win that the Chiefs had. So, can the Bengals get back? to the AFC Championship and beyond. Can this be the year that they go to the Super Bowl? I Win mean, the Super Bowl? It can be. Perfect. Yeah. Good answer. Will it be? Who knows? So what's changed here? Like last year, let's start in the offense again. Last year, the big talk was how they somewhat cheaply shored up their offensive line. Now, as they got into the playoffs, injuries mounted, including left tackle Jonah Williams and – Pretty much looked like the previous year's offensive line once they got into the playoffs. Maybe a touch better. This year, though, again, going into the season, uh, Orlando Brown Jr. comes in to play left tackle. Jonah Williams moves to the right side. There was just an article yesterday. Paul Daynard, what do you got here? You got something to say? Well, the, uh, the, <laughs> the Bengals and the Bills had a game that was called off. That's why they had 12-4. and four. I'm sorry. Yeah. I apologize to our, to our team. I knew I, knew I must have misspoke yeah. somewhere. So it's us that are the it's not. Oh, it's definitely me. Not the production staff. I'll get fired. Yeah, well, maybe. Eli and Tyler would do the show. Sounds good. Well, why don't we just make that switch now? You can you can go into the booth. I'll go to the booth. Eli can come in here, <laughs> sit in the chair, and we'll we'll do the podcast. I apologize. I do apologize to um to the group, <laughs> to everyone, to all of our listeners, yeah. for making that mistake. Um, so I think this could be the best Bengals offensive line. Joan, so Paul Daner Jr., uh, we'll see him at practice today. Is he a junior? I think so. Oh. Yeah. PDJ, I call him. PDJ. Uh, he had an article about Jonah Williams settling into the right side and how he'd been looking good there at practice. Reports were good. Um, I always have my concerns about players moving from the left side to the right side four or five years into their NFL career. Not, not like year one coming out of college, but four or five years. Um, sometimes it takes a little bit of time. But if he settles in at right tackle, Orlando Brown Jr. at left tackle, uh, Alex Kappa, and, you know, they've got a good squad. Ted Karras, they've got a good offensive line. We know about the playmakers, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon's back. If they could all stay healthy, make it a little bit easier to get through the AFC and maybe even win a Super Bowl if the offensive line can stay intact this year. Yeah, and maybe the most loaded uh, wide receiver group in the NFL. And, you know, everyone is everyone focuses on just the top three, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, uh, Tyler Boyd. But the guys that they've drafted have been making plays in training camp. Charlie Jones, who I maintain, it makes no sense. There's no pathway for this to happen. But I, I feel like that guy's going to have a useful contribution in his rookie season like he's going to make some plays that are going to be important for them but Andre Yosivas the Princeton wide receiver has been making a ton of plays as well and has gone from like oh here's an afterthought that might not make the squad to maybe this is a, a reason that they can move on from T Higgins in the future like that those are the sort of reports or, or talk that is going around with that guy Irv Smith Jr. tight end you know this perennial if he could just stay healthy type of guy I love the Bengals' approach over the last couple of years of, like, let's just take some flyers at, at reclamation projects at tight ends, knowing that Joe Burrow is a god and can turn anybody into a pretty decent-looking tight end if he's got skills, if he's got the ability to run 
you know, to a- athleticism, there'll be opportunities for that guy. I'm with you because it's it's their fourth option, right? I mean, you know, the top three receivers will be the number one options, and it, you know, there'll be a game where Irv Smith might have eight catches, and they're just he happens to be the guy that's that's open during because of something that happened schematically. I'm also with you on Charlie Jones again. The more we watched him and the crushing Big Ten corners, but in uh, Andre Eusebis, the insurance policies that they've built at receiver, if the camp hype is legit for both of those guys, um, it, it, it could help both tactically this year as you know wide receiver four potential, but also future-proofing the roster. We use the word future-proofing a bunch for them because a lot of their draft picks have been guys like Miles, Miles Murphy who uh, on the defensive side of the ball who might not have to contribute right away, but um, a cheap option at an expensive position to just jump into the rotation. Miles Murphy, Trey Hendrickson, they've got some some good options up front defensively. Um, anything else about the Bengals' offense before we move to the defensive side of the ball? I think they're going to be explosive. They're going to be great. I think Burrow has settled in as QB 1, 2, or 3, depending on how you want to rank them. Yeah, it should be a really good unit again. Um, I think Orlando Brown Jr. as an acquisition was a really great piece of opportunism for the Bengals. Like, they didn't go into the offseason expecting that to be a thing that they were interested in. It's just all of a sudden Orlando Brown's market wasn't there, and they they lost a couple of players they were probably anticipating on keeping and decided to move the money around and go go after him. So now you bring him in, should be a significant upgrade. You know, even if Orlando Brown is not an all-pro or whatever, he's he's better than Jonah Williams was last year. And probably better than Jonah Williams has ever been in the NFL. But Williams himself should be an upgrade over what was at right tackle last year. Like, even if he plays like he did last season, it's probably an upgrade. And if he goes anywhere near his previous baseline, it will be a reasonably significant one. Kappa, Karras, those guys were solid. The only other question mark is what does Cordell Volson look like year two? Um, he struggled, you know, year one, but we liked him as a prospect coming out. If he takes a step forward, like, that line could be pretty good. So... Overall, I think the offense should be a very, very good unit. And then the only question mark is, how serious is this calf injury that Joe Burrow is is dealing with? Like, you know, we joke about it because yours was fake. But for somebody whose calf was real, Burrow, like that's, I mean, the stuff that Jamar Chase is saying, like, don't show up before week five. I mean, that that might not be a dumb idea. Like, yes, you might, you might be sacrificing seeding, but... It does, like, does seeding even matter in the AFC? Like, sure, if you get the number one seed, it's huge because it's a buy. Like, you don't have to play one of these murderers row teams in the, the playoffs. But anything outside of the number one seed, you're going to have to play them anyway. Let's just make sure that Joe Burrow is there when you're playing them. Yeah, like, I th- again, I think I said this a couple shows ago, whatever, but the 17th game plus the only one buy because it's just harder to get might make it more likely for teams – to do that, to rest starters and say, you know, the difference between seed two and four isn't that drastic. We're probably not going to get one because of this injury or whatever, and we don't want to risk, you know, not making it like, you know, or, or losing the first round like the Ravens last year. Well, it's really tough because it's like an all or nothing proposition now. Like, you need the number one seed, otherwise, seeding is basically irrelevant. I mean, not entirely. You know, there's still something to home field, blah, blah, blah. But, and, and where you have to go potentially with the other seeds. But, those are so negligible compared with, I think, the risk of, you know, losing one of these guys. It's like, 
you know, the, the preseason debate, is it worth playing your starters at all? Like, is the injury risk worth whatever marginal gain you get in knocking the rust off and, you know, just trying to learn stuff about your offense, blah, blah, blah. Everybody has basically decided preseason, it's not worth the risk. Now you're, I think you're focusing on it um, with playoffs. You need those guys healthy, but that number one seed is still a really, really big carrot because not playing, not having any risk whatsoever of getting dumped out by like an AFC wildcard team who could be really good. While we're here, there were some offseason comments that I don't think I, I, I didn't address. I don't, I don't know if you did at all, but Orlando Brown Jr. saying something to the effect of, I'm blo- blocking for Joe Burrow's different. You know where he's going to be in the pocket or something to that effect. And I believe Chiefs fans got real offended by this, where, it, you know, the just to interpret what he's saying, like it's true. He's or he said he's going to be at a tighter depth, so it's like quote unquote easier to block for Joe Burrow than Patrick Mahomes, and it's like yeah, there's there's truth to that. Mahomes drops back deeper than almost any quarterback in the league generally, um, and it makes it a little bit easier for uh, edge defenders to just take this really wide arc around the edge. So it wasn't an insult thing that Orlando Brown Jr. saying. So it's just it's different blocking for Joe Burrow versus Patrick Mahomes easier in the sense that yes you don't have to get as much depth you don't have to worry about cutting a guy off who's trying to get to a 10-yard depth you're trying to get him at seven to eight just changes things a little bit I think regardless of all that I've been impressed with Orlando Brown and I think when Chiefs fans didn't love him a lot of it was because he looks bad because sometimes Mahomes drops to nine or, or 10 or 11 yards and it looks like it's the left tackle's fault when it might not be so Orlando Brown Jr. has been very good in multiple schemes, in Baltimore's run-heavy scheme, in Kansas City's pass-heavy scheme. I'm at the point where Orlando Brown Jr., like I trust him as a good left tackle, sure. and I think that's going to help a lot in Cincinnati. It's quite an interesting dynamic, though, because I think it, he's probably right in terms of it, it, it feels easier from an offensive lineman's point of view because you have a better idea of where Joe Burrow is going to be in any given play. But Joe Burrow, I mean, Patrick Mahomes is probably the best quarterback in the NFL at avoiding sacks generally, right? Yes. And Joe Burrow is at the other end of the scale. He's one of the, he's one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. Not like disastrously so, but he's at that end of the spectrum. So what you gain from knowing where he's going to be, you probably more than lose in he's going to hold on to the ball longer and he's going to push that extreme as much as possible trying to extend the play and you know give guys a chance and blah blah blah. and it's i'm not saying it's a bad thing for the offense for anything but it is a reality that as much as it might feel bad that mahomes is kind of hanging you out to dry by dropping beyond where he should and all those kinds of things he's also making up for it by not actually letting it be a problem so it might feel worse from an off it's it's a little bit like you know the way quarterbacks don't like some quarterbacks don't like play action because they have to take their eyes off the defense and then you know it just feels uncomfortable but it's actually good for you like it it might feel bad but it it's beneficial it works more than if you don't do it at all it's like it might feel bad that Mahomes is never where you expect the guy to be but it's actually good for you because the guy's a magician and doesn't take sacks so like just embrace it. Yeah, whereas there's nuance to this. Yeah, whereas now you might feel much better because Joe Burrow is where you expect but, him to be at all times, but actually he might make you look a bit worse because he's going to hang on to the ball longer. But that's why you use PFF grade and not sacks allowed because Orlando Brown Jr. might give up more sacks this year because Burrow's worse at taking sacks than Patrick Mahomes is, but the grade might be similar or better because that's a better capture of 
actual performance it's by just, the tackle. It feels like an example of, like, be careful what you wish for. Like, you might think this is a great thing, but actually you end up looking a little bit worse because of it. Uh, defensively for the Bengals, they've been uh, very good the last couple of years. We've talked a lot about Lou Anarumo as their defensive coordinator and his ability to make first and second half adjustments and have uh, different game plans every single week. Their big offseason question mark is losing both starting safeties, Jesse Bates, uh, Vaughn Bell. Both guys move on in free agency, and now it's uh, first-round pick Dax Hill from you know last year rookie who did not play very much last year, stepping in at safety. And then who? Nick Scott, rookie third-rounder Jordan Battle, Michael Thomas, Brandon Wilson, Tyson Anderson, a battle for the other safety spot for the Bengals here. So that's what we'll watch at camp today is see how the safeties are looking. But generally, I think Bengals fans, how do the game plans get altered this year if there's less flexibility and you know fewer veterans on the back end there? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've done a good job. They're one of those teams that has done a good job of future-proofing the roster, uh, making sure that they have succession plans at various spots along the defense. But now those guys are actually required to show up and play, and they need to show that they're capable of doing that. Dax Hill, I think, is the, the most obvious example of a guy that was basically redshirted for year one, and now he needs to show up and be like a, a real impact player at safety. They're, I mean, even then, they've done a pretty good job of contingency. Like Michael Thomas, the, the other, other Michael Thomas, like the safety Michael Thomas, right. one of the best special teams players in the NFL for years, but has also got enough starting experience at safety that if the worst-case scenario happened and Dax Hill just stinks you could put Michael Thomas out there as a starting safety and things would be fine. Like, it wouldn't be a problem spot. So even in those situations, they've done a really good job of ensuring that that isn't a catastrophe. Um, but the range of, like, outcomes there is hugely contingent on how those players play. Uh, they just locked up Logan Wilson, the And Jermaine Pratt, yeah. And Jermaine Pratt. So two young linebackers who, you know, Logan Wilson had the uh, unfortunate holding in the Super Bowl against the Rams. Unfortunate holding. Right. Yeah, it was kind of a cheap call. Wilson had a really nice year. They both did, year. yeah. They both played. I mean, Jermaine Pratt essentially had like a, a sort of slightly poor man's version of the Tremaine Edmonds season, you know? Very coverage-focused, very sort of almost out of nowhere, young linebacker taking that, that big step. Um, and they got him for pennies on the dollar compared with uh, Tremaine Edmonds in terms of how much it cost him to lock up. Logan Wilson, I think, has become a really good linebacker for them generally. I mean, this is a good defense as well and has one of the best defensive coordinators running it. I mean, the Bengals, they're contenders for a reason. They've got – my timer's going off here, so we've got to wrap this up here. So that's 15 minutes, you say? Yeah, well, I, I brought us off the rails with the Orlando Brown. Just I added in a little too much. You know, that's what happened. And the deck of cards comes down. Didn't need to do that. House of cards. I do want to shout out DJ Reader and what he did last year, playing the run, and it gives – when you play the Browns a couple times a year, it just gives them flexibility, the Bengals, to, to win in different ways defensively. A big run stopper up front, pass rushers like uh, uh, Trey Hendrickson and Sam Hubbard and now Miles Murphy – the big question is going to be the safety position and health at corner. So the over-under for the Bengals is same as the Ravens. Yep. Ten and a half. Where are you going with this one, Sam? I will lean over on this one. Um, I don't want to agree with you all the time, but I'm going. Because I'm a hometown Bengals homer. Yeah, big-time uh, Bengals homer. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I, – I, again, I'm going to default under for most of these, but I do think that the Bengals have the furthest advantage 
over the rest of those teams. Like they are, they are up there with Kansas City and you know whoever else you want to put in that true alpha tier of contenders. Where there's not a lot to dislike about this roster. There's a lot of depth in a lot of places and a lot of contingency in a lot of places. And they have Joe Burrow now. This is kind of assuming he plays week one, week two at the latest. If that stretches into like we're not seeing him until October, then I'm changing my mind. But well, that definitely affects affects the over under. Yeah, but for now, I will say over. Trevor Simeon and Jake Browning, the backups right now in camp. I'm going to go over ten and a half. I learned a lot last year. The Bengals weren't just a one year flash in the pan. Mm. They they backed it up last year, and I've said before. I think the most impressive thing for me from a Zach Taylor head coaching standpoint, is their ability to bounce back. They had it, they laid an absolute egg on Monday Night Football against the Browns last year, and they bounced back, and they played their stretch last year against a lot of tough teams, and they handled it. The bones of this thing are solid. Like, there's, the Bengals are not a team that just had a run one time, you know, and are going to struggle to get back. This is a team that is a for-real contender, you know, in, in the same way the Chiefs are like locked into being in the AFC title game every year, as long as they have Mahomes and, and Reed, like the Bengals are locked into being the team they face, barring, you know, getting knocked out by another team. Like they're right there with Kansas City as a legitimate rival for a, a period of time. All right, 15 minutes on your Cleveland Browns, give or take. Uh, Cleveland Browns are up next. Tyler's Cleveland Browns. So we got a, a Browns and Bengals fan. In the, uh, in the booth right now. That's how it usually goes here. Browns were 7-10 and 10 last year. This year projected for just about eight wins and a fascinating roster because, again, they've done a nice job of building uh, just unit by unit. They're good. Offensive line, receivers. We'll talk about their, their new defensive line and all of the new pass rushers that they've added in. Uh, Jim Schwartz comes in to coordinate the defense. There's a lot of additions to a Browns team that just had a weird season. You had a 12-game suspension from Deshaun Watson. Jacoby Brissett played solid but wasn't able to close some games. And then Watson comes in and plays the worst ball of his career in a six-game stretch, five-game stretch, whatever it was. So we have no idea (laughs) what's going to happen at the quarterback position, right? Like everything's good on paper. The Browns are making moves like I was saying with the Ravens. It seems like a lot of just over and over more good decisions than bad. But it's all going to come down to what do they get from Deshaun Watson, who is now almost three years removed from the best play, real good NFL play. We haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, I mean, just viable NFL play. Like, three years removed from playing, essentially, at all. And I forget who it was, but somebody was... The thing that was most concerning last year about Deshaun Watson is that, to me, there were no signs of improvement. It wasn't like, you know... How long does it take to knock the rust off of a couple of years on the shelf? Like, nobody knows because it's never really happened at a quarterback, you know, in, in the modern NFL. We've never really seen that. So it's entirely plausible to say it'll take a half and then he's back, right? There's, like it does in preseason. Or it's also entirely plausible to argue, you know, it's going to take four or five games or whatever, and then you'll start to see it. So anything was on the table. Um, and I, you didn't ever see it. Now, I saw some people argue that you saw it in those last couple of games, right? And those last couple of games, he threw three touchdowns against Washington, two against Pittsburgh. But Oh, the Pittsburgh game was terrible. Right. right. The Pittsburgh game, he had a PFF grade of 38. Uh, he had four turnover-worthy plays, like a monstrous number on 29 attempts. Uh, so I don't 
think that that's true. I don't think he did show any sign of improvement whatsoever, which is not to say that it, you know, it, it's, he's not going to bounce back this year and with a year you know, in the system and a year operating, et cetera, we're going to see a completely different player. But the fact that there were never any signs of it getting better last year is definitely a little bit concerning. Yeah, remember in Watson's career, the, the most recent full season we have is 2020 where the, the Texans go 4-12 and 12 and Watson grades over 90. And it was, it was one of the biggest differences in quarterback performance and team record in NFL history. But, and he was, Watson, incredibly consistent that year. We talked about Lamar having those, those bouts of, those stretches of poor play. What had happened in Watson's career up to that point is he would have three or four games that were just really bad, that would kind of pull him down a little bit from a grading standpoint, from a production standpoint, but consistent, consistently good. Um, he'd been good with some bad games in there. And last year we just... Saw a few of those bad games, which weren't foreign to him throughout his career, but we just we never saw the high end. Well, so his, what are we? Can can Watson even get back to average across the board? Because that's what Brissett was—pretty average quarterback, game manager. It's a run-heavy offense. He, you know, did did his thing, and they were in a lot of games. The yeah, the best single-game performance he had last year was like a seventy grade. He barely dipped below that during the 2020 season, like his best season. His worst grades that year were in the high 60s. Like, so a completely different player. Um, but as I say, it doesn't. We don't know what he's going to look like this year. I mean, he could entirely. Last year was just rust, and that's how long it takes. And we've never seen that before. And now we are going to see a different version of Deshaun Watson. Maybe he doesn't get back to being the player he was in 2020, but if he's the 2019, 2018 version of Deshaun Watson, it's still more than good enough for this team to look like a contender. And they have done a really good job of rebuilding the whole roster. But let's focus on the offense for the moment. You know, now before. The receiving core generally was not necessarily a strength. They brought in Amari Cooper. That was a big move last year. Um, then it was just Donovan Peoples-Jones. But they've had off-season additions of Elijah Moore, who a lot of people are, I mean, everybody is predicting some form of breakout for Elijah Moore, a guy that people thought were sort of trapped in that Jets offense and whatever, just wasn't working there, but has the talent to break out. Cedric Tillman, we talked before, the Tennessee wide receiver, the rookie, a lot of people love him as well. So now you've got some depth to that wide receiver core, along with a guy like David Njoku, a tight end. Um, there's, there's weaponry and still one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. There's no reason whatsoever that this offense should be bad. Yeah, I agree. I, like, I, like, you know, I don't think the receivers are – I don't know where we ranked them. I don't, I don't, I don't think they're on paper going to be ranked crazy high or anything. But Cooper's a good one. He's still a good number one. Yeah. The Elijah Moore thing you mentioned, Cedric Tillman looked good in the Hall of Fame game. Peoples-Jones has a deep threat I like. And um, David Njoku was very good last year. He was another one of those classic tight ends who sometimes they don't show up till year four or five. Yeah. David Njoku is one of these guys. Tight end in the NFL is the one position where when you see those people in person, you are reminded how utterly freaky they are in terms of size and speed and athleticism and stuff. When you see David Njoku in person, you're like – how is this guy like we're not the same species you and I, I I'm like this regular sized human and when you like when you stand next to NFL safeties or whatever at my size you're like yeah that's fine even offensive linemen a lot of the time yeah they're big but they're clumsy and kind of goofy walking around you know because they're carrying 330 pounds whereas you have a David Njoku out here you know 
six inches or whatever taller than I am, chiseled at 250 pounds. You're like, that guy is an absolute freak of nature. How is anybody supposed to go out there and cover him? And he showed it at times last year, more than he had previously. So uh, pass catchers look pretty good across the board. Offensive line, four-fifths, really strong, especially if Jack Conklin is back healthy again, although we did mention Dewan Jones. Mm. The rookie fourth-rounder looked good if he has to play right, right tackle, if there's another Conklin injury. Uh, the question is going to be Jedrick Wills heading into – he's the starting left tackle. He's heading into year four. He's been a little underwhelming compared to some of the other first-round tackles from that class, Andrew Thomas, Tristan Wirfs. Uh, if Wills, he's right, right around that point where the offensive lineman would take a step forward. So the Browns, for like the fifth straight year, by the way, and maybe five, you know, eight out of ten years, look like a top three offensive line on paper going into the season and with have, Nick Chubb running the ball. And have built in contingency. You know, yeah. This is the theme for good teams we talked about. Dewan Jones could easily end up stepping in for Jack Conklin if Conklin gets hurt again. Luke Whipler in the Hall of Fame game looked really good. Yes. And this was a guy that slipped in the draft for reasons I don't understand. Was a really good college center. Ethan Pochich at center for them last year was one of those kind of, oh, that was, that was kind of a surprisingly good season. They bring him back. But that's not to say that will necessarily repeat again. This is a guy who's had some not great tape in his previous uh, NFL career. So if, like, if Pochich turns back into a pumpkin, a guy like Luke Whipler is sitting there ready to kind of show up and potentially win that starting job down the line as well. So it's good offensive line immediately with the starters, but they also have a lot of depth there as well. All right, the biggest non-Deshaun Watson story for the Browns this year is the defensive line. Yeah. Last year... Um, by the way, where did Miles Garrett end up in the NFL top, top 10 line? somewhere? Oh, he was uh, top 10. Yeah, pretty okay. high. Higher than I thought he might be. Okay, because I think, remember, you're a, you're a, you're a voter now. Not of Miles that. Garrett had, what? Not of that. Not of the, you're not a player. I'm not a player. Voting. You're a, Definitely not a player. Or a player. AP voter. No. Yeah, yeah. MVP voter. Right. Uh, Miles Garrett was. Miles Garrett was awesome last year. But if you watch the Browns, you understood that it was Miles Garrett with no friends. No friends. It was not Miles Garrett and friends. It was Miles Garrett and no friends. Um, Jadavian Clowney was there again. I thought that was fine. Uh, they got some below-average play from Alex Wright. Maybe I misspoke. Where is he? I don't think he's in twenty. Like, yeah, he felt that he's in twenty because he was coming off this year where like people just forgot him. Like he's just as good as Micah Parsons and Nick Bosa and T.J. Watt. He's right there with all those guys. Yeah. Oh, I mean. Better, I would argue. Like, Miles yeah. Garrett, um, there were three amazing seasons from edge rushers last year. Miles Garrett, Nick Bosa, Micah Parsons. And the big thing was, well, there's three players who all had... I mean, they were three Defensive Player of the Year candidates, and the three guys have to try and get squeezed into two all-pro spots for the edge, right? And it's like, well, which guy misses out? Which Defensive Player of the Year candidate misses out, not just on Defensive Player of the Year, but actually all-pro as well? And it was very difficult to separate any of the three. And we ended up dropping Nick Bosa out as the, the, the guy that missed out because essentially the only data point you could find that split the three of them was Bosa had by far the easiest assignment on an average basis relative to the other two guys. Like when you look at some of the offensive tackles that Micah Parsons victimized, it's insane relative to who Nick Bosa was playing. And because of that off or the the defense that they were running there, like Nick Bosa was getting blocked by tight ends more often than left tackle. Not more often than left tackles, but 
was being blocked by tight ends more often than the other guys were as well. So generally speaking, his assignment was an awful lot easier, which is not to say that he didn't do an amazing job with those assignments, but it's like, well, what does it look like if Miles Garrett has that assignment, right, on, a, on every single snap? Does he have a better season? Maybe. So they tried to find friends for and Miles Garrett. The, the other part of this, um, so, you know, it was Garrett and it was Clowney. It was really those two guys. But the Browns looked like they had taken this very analytical approach to building the roster. When you stack positions on the defensive side of the ball by value, defensive tackle usually comes down at the bottom these days. I've seen, I've talked to other teams who have done this and we can do this a little bit. It doesn't mean if you have Aaron Donald, it's not a good thing. If you have special players, they're going to make an impact anywhere. Aaron Donald, Chris Jones. But like in a vacuum, defensive tackle is far less valuable than say edge, corner, maybe even safety and linebacker. And it felt like the Browns built their team like that. They just said, okay, we're not going to spend money here. We're just going to grab some third and fourth, third and fourth rounders who do actually develop into decent defensive tackles historically. And it just hasn't worked at all. Jordan Elliott has not been good whatsoever. Some of the other investments that they've made, not great. So this year, they've changed. And they go and get Dalvin Tomlinson. He's making over $14 million a year. Just having Tomlinson should shore up that run defense, which you know we talk a lot of, eh, maybe the run defense isn't as important as it used to be, and it's a pass-first league. But if it's that bad, and the Browns have had games where it's that bad, where they get run over for 200 yards, and we've seen that. The Chargers have a, a similar deal. When you're that bad, it's an issue. And the Browns have gone to great lengths to shore that up at defensive tackle. Dalvin Tomlinson, Siaki Ika comes in, the great Maurice Hurst comes in. Um, so they're, so they should be better at defensive tackle. Tristan Hill as well. Yeah. And then they also go get Obo Okoronkwo on the edge, who looked like he was going to be the guy opposite Miles Garrett until they grab Zadarius Smith for pennies on the dollar in a trade with the Vikings. So... Yeah, I like what the Browns have done on the D-line this offseason. Love it. I mean, a clear focus on that defensive line. Like, we are talking, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, six plus, like, significant additions to that defensive line because they drafted players as well. Guys like Isaiah McGuire. Like, this is a and, – and Siaki Ika, the big nose tackle. Like, they really went hard after this defensive line, which not only should help – you know, shore up the run defense, shore up the, the pass rush, help Miles Garrett by proxy because he's not the sole focus of attention anymore. It should also help the back end that got victimized last year. Like, the concept of what they were doing I don't think was nuts. Like, let's focus all the resources on coverage because coverage is really valuable and it's a weak link proposition. If, our, if we have weak links in the secondary, we're going to get torn to pieces. It's just maybe they went too hard at that and the symbiotic relationship between pass rush, run defense, and the secondary is actually a lot tighter or more finely balanced than people give it credit for. And you can't simply do that, right? Focus all the resources on the secondary. Forget the front seven because if the front seven stinks, the secondary gets wrecked because the quarterback has all day to carve them up. So not only will it help the pass rush and the run defense and Miles Garrett, I think it's probably going to help the secondary bounce back and show the talent that they have, which is substantial, right? Denzel Ward, Greg Newsom, a first-round pick. Martin Emerson played really well. JOK as a coverage type of linebacker. Like, there's a lot of talent on that back end as well. So across the board, I think this has the potential to be really good. And just circling back to a guy like Zadarius Smith in particular, obviously, you know, an edge rusher by trade, et cetera. But, like, 
fully a third of his production comes rushing on the inside, right? Like as a as a stand-up rush linebacker who sticks himself in the B gap and runs from the interior rushes from the interior. Like he gives you the ability to dump Dalvin Tomlinson off the field on pass rushing downs, right? And and line up effectively with four genuine pass rushers, one of whom kicks inside and rushes like Okoronkwo and Zadarius Smith can be on the field at the same time on third downs along with Miles Garrett and, and a pass rushing defensive tackle. I'll definitely be watching to see how they deploy those resources from an edge defender standpoint. The players in the secondary that you mentioned, um, if you just use PFF war, who, who in the secondary was above average last year? Well, four-fifths of those guys. The, the worst guy was Denzel Ward, who out of nowhere just had pretty much I mean, by far the worst season of his career. He had, he's normally one of the better corners in the NFL, so the potential's there. Juan Thornhill, Grant Delpit, Martin Emerson, who you mentioned, Greg Newsom. Those safeties and corners were all above average using PFF War last year, and Denzel Ward was not. Mm. He was well below average, but I expect a bounce-back year from him. So on paper, things look a lot better on the defensive side of the ball for the Browns, plus Jim Schwartz running the show. Time's up. Nine and a half is the over-under for the Browns. Where are you going with this one? Oh, Browns are one of the teams. They might have the widest range of outcomes in the NFL. Yes. Like, they could be a true AFC contender, or if Deshaun Watson is no better than he was last year, they could be bad. Like, <laughs> very bad. So, whew, nine and a half. I'm going to take the opposite of whatever you take. So. Oh, Okay. Well, then let's stick with our uh, cliches. I'll go under, you go over. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'll lean on the positive side. I'll take the positive range of outcomes here for the Browns. It is worth, I mean, it's also worth noting, you know, they won seven games last year without Deshaun Watson in what's seen as a massive disappointment. So as much as their range of outcomes, I think, is pretty broad, they're unlikely to be truly awful. Yeah. This is what I'm struggling with because the Pittsburgh Steelers are up next. And I... I kind of feel good about the actual rosters of all four AFC North teams. Yeah. I mean, I think the AFC North is one of the toughest divisions in the NFL. All four of those teams, I think, are good in, in abstract terms, which isn't to say that you know one of them just catches the bad end of every close game and finishes with like a six-win season. So Steelers finished 9-8 and eight last year because, of course, they did. Mike Tomlin. And they're Never. projected for exactly 9.19 wins this year because of Mike Tomlin. <laughs> Lock it in. And that's what they're going to do. Um, a couple off seasons ago, it it didn't feel good in Pittsburgh. It 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 felt like not only was Big Ben getting older, but the roster was just slowly getting chipped away at. The offensive line had been chipped away for a few years after they uh, they had been one of the more consistent units in the league uh, four or five years ago. I, I really think Omar Khan, the new general manager there, has done a nice job building back the depth in Pittsburgh. Now, of course, it's all going to come down to Kenny Pickett and what his year two looks like. But the depth in Pittsburgh, we loved their draft this year, some of the players that they brought in. It looks really good on paper, just like the Browns, Ravens, and Bengals. So what are you looking for this year in Pittsburgh? Similar story to Baltimore in terms of I think the focus is actually less on personnel and more on scheme and coaching and what that looks like but the difference being Pittsburgh's defining characteristic is that they didn't change anything from that point of view whereas Baltimore's is that they did like the big focus for the Ravens is what does the new offense look like 
The big focus in Pittsburgh is can the system that didn't change actually take advantage of what looks like a massive influx of really talented playmakers across the board? George Pickens, you know, lighting it up in training camp, making spectacular catches left, right, and center. Deontay Johnson, we know, is one of the best route runners in the NFL, will separate to a really high level. Allen Robinson, fantastic, like, buy low, roll of the dice, gamble. Perfect. Pat Fryermuth at, at tight end is a good player. Darnell, Darnell Washington brought in is just an absolute, you know, freak show to see what he can do. As you say, Calvin Austin, dude, we loved, or I loved last season, is working his way in as a consistent, deep threat in this offense, which is huge. Um, Najee Harris, I, as much as people are souring on him generally, I think as a talented player who's just being let down by the fact that he, the expectations or the ask for him was unrealistic. That's a really, really good group of playmakers. And I was very impressed by Kenny Pickett, albeit with some very low expectations of him coming in a terrible quarterback draft. The offensive line wasn't bad, and they went out to improve it with guys like Isaac, uh, Isaac Samalu and Broderick Jones in the draft. I mean, this offense, from a personnel standpoint, this should be a good group. But if the system stinks, it won't be. Right. So let's, let's discuss that a little bit. Because you summed up the personnel on offense. I agree with everything you're saying. The receiving core, the, the, the offensive line, the weaknesses tackle, and they, they grab a Broderick Jones in the first round. Everything's moving in the right direction there. I don't know what happens with Allen Robinson. He's another one of those guys who just take the shot every year because yeah. the high-end potential's there. So what do you do with Kenny Pickett? Because there are, there's definitely ways to look at our data and say, man, he, he played pretty good ball last year after, you know, he's a rookie, after a bit of a slow start. He played pretty well down the stretch. Now, we've, all, we've certainly gotten burnt by, if you just look at the last eight weeks of this guy's rookie season and project it forward, like, that doesn't work. You know, that was Sam Darnold had one of the top grades the last four weeks of his rookie year, and it means nothing from that perspective. But what Kenny Pickett did, and even Mitch Trubisky, from a PFF grading standpoint, they were both solid, graded in the 70s. They were fine. But the, the stats weren't great. And, you know, I say this a lot about PFF grades. I think there's a, it's a good way to separate the quarterback's contribution versus the rest of the offense's contribution. So when you see Kenny Pickett with, like, seven touchdowns and nine interceptions, like if I just went to, like, pro football reference and looked up Kenny Pickett's stats, I think, yeah, that's a rookie year right there. More interceptions and touchdowns, and you know everything's pedestrian. But we had him graded far better than those stats showed. And I think what's happened is the offense is not creating the easy, right? It's the opposite of Kyle Shanahan's system, where you don't have to perform at a high level to have gaudy stats. Steelers quarterbacks, it seems over these last couple of years, have to work really hard to have great stats. And you usually point that to the offense. Usually, you look at the offensive coordinator or the playmakers. And I don't think it's the playmakers in Pittsburgh. They have a variety of different styled pass catchers that should work well with Kenny Pickett. The offense also just had a bit of a spark with Pickett over Trubisky, you know, just having QB sneaks and some, you know, a few runs here and there that, that worked. So I like Pickett. I think he'll have a good season. I just I still don't know if it's going to show up on the stat sheet. The contrast between Kenny Pickett and Brock Purdy last year are, is fascinating because they had – very, very similar PFF grades. So on a play-by-play -play accounting of their season ends you up in a very similar spot, right? 75 grade, 75.5 
for Kenny Pickett, 76.6 for Brock Purdy. Similar kind of difference uh, in terms of passing grade. Very close. Brock Purdy basically a, a grading point higher across the board. But statistically, Kenny Pickett has seven touchdowns, nine interceptions. Purdy had 13 touchdowns, four interceptions. And, you know, any, any box score type of stat says Brock Purdy was like light years ahead. But actually, like Kenny Pickett had a big-time throw rate of 4.3%, which is actually pretty good. Like, that's the same as Dak Prescott. It's uh, 0.1 behind Kirk Cousins. It's uh, who else was in that area that was actually an impressive name? Um, like, it's a pretty good mark. It's, it's middle of the pack. But Tua was that, it was a 4.3%. Um, like, it's, it's, it's a good spot to be in. Purdy's was nowhere near that level um, because he's just sort of operating this Kyle Shanahan offense, which, you know, the, the, the main feature of which is, like, just give, take what I give you and you'll have incredible numbers. You don't need to have big time throws. So you've got yeah. two guys that, let's say, broadly speaking, are playing similarly. But one of them is being, like, sent to the moon because he's in a cheat code of an offense, and the other one is being dragged down by a system that doesn't even run routes in the middle of the field. It's like completely opposite ends of the spectrum. So the difference in like perception for those two guys could not be further apart. Like Brock Purdy, oh, we we found like the next Tom Brady in the uh, in the the last pick of the draft. This is amazing. And Kenny Pickett, it's like, ah, is he even the guy in Pittsburgh? Maybe like he flashed a little bit. But not uh, in Pittsburgh, by the way. No, no, you're talking sure. nationally. Like, yes. in Pittsburgh, and I'm not just talking about my friends on the PM show here. But, like, in Pittsburgh, it's like, oh, yeah, Kenny Pickett, year right. two. Look at the other year two quarterbacks. Joe Burrow went to the Super Bowl, and Patrick Mahomes <laughs> won a Super Bowl. And, yeah. I mean, a, an MVP, and Lamar was an MVP, and Pickett's going to do that. Right. And, but the problem becomes, what if the system doesn't stop dragging him down? Like, if Ken, they might be right that Kenny Pickett has that kind of ability, and we could be looking at a potential pro bowl or all pro here. But if the system doesn't change... He will continue to get dragged by, down by it, and he will average 6.2 yards per attempt, and he'll have more interceptions and touchdowns. And, you know, these things could repeat if the system doesn't help him out. And that's the big concern. So one of Pickett's first games, playing the Dolphins, Sunday night football, he's got a fourth-quarter comeback attempt and throws a terrible game-ending interception. It's like, oh, man, just, just doesn't have the traits, just, mm. just doesn't do it. But then you've got like Christmas Eve against the Raiders, a couple other games in there where he had a little of that late game magic. And I think that's where Steelers fans are most optimistic about Pickett. Um, and that's where I might be swayed a little bit with the pedestrian stats, but loved what he did with the game on the line in a, in a, couple, different, in a couple different games down the stretch. So um, I think Pickett will be fine. He'll be solid. I just don't know if that's enough to overcome the other three quarterbacks in particular in this division. But yeah. the offense is better than it's been. And then the defense, it's been night and day with, with and without, with and without T.J. Watt. And so it's another, like, on paper, huge playmaker on the defensive line in Cameron Hayward, huge playmaker basically on the defensive line with T.J. Watt. Mika Fitzpatrick as a do-it-all type of safety. Uh, they've got the big names. They've got underrated names like Alex Highsmith, you know, who's quietly had better production than the guys opposite T.J. Watt over the re- over recent years, who I have I won't, won't name names. So they've got pieces on defense as well. My question for them on that side of the ball is going to be the cornerback group. Yeah, Patrick Peterson at his age, Joey Porter Jr. as a, as a rookie, Levi Wallace. Can they hold up a corner? 
It's an interesting defense now. Um, obviously, the return of TJ Watt to what we assume will be full health is is pretty huge. Um, there might not be a more important individual defensive player in the NFL than TJ Watt with the impact that he has on that defense. Cameron Hayward has been fantastic, continues to look like a star every single year. It doesn't matter how old he gets. And now you have this like weird collection of, uh, I guess, front seven players. Like Highsmith got, got paid. Marcus Golden has come in. Like that guy consistently generates pressure. Um, he's obviously, he's got a level, he's got a ceiling, but he's a really useful guy to have as part of a, a defensive line, defensive front rotation. Um, some of the guys they drafted, like Keanu Benton, was somebody we really liked on the interior. Joining with guys that you know haven't necessarily come, panned out yet, like Demarvin Leal, who you know is part of that rotation but hasn't shown real plus play. Larry Ogunjobi has, has had a weird career, so you've got this kind of bizarre mismatch or collection of these defensive front guys that probably because it's Pittsburgh and Mike Tomlin come together as a pretty good group. Um, Linebacker, they've had a lot of turnover there, and you know, Juan Alexander comes in as Cole well. Holcomb being there is a, a pretty good player, and then cornerback is the fascinating thing. You bring in Patrick Peterson, you know, the established veteran. You draft Joey Porter Jr., the son of a Pittsburgh great, at a completely different position. Levi Wallace, you know, continue a, a perennial guy who's just always pretty useful. Um, I mean, how that looks, and Patrick Peterson on the surface doesn't necessarily seem like the best schematic fit for what Pittsburgh does. So how that works and how Joey Porter does as a guy who was talked about as like a one-dimensional man cover corner. If you play press man, he's your guy. If you play anything else, forget about it. I didn't necessarily agree with that um, evaluation of him, but how that plays year one is going to be fascinating. They, they did play a little bit more man last year in Pittsburgh, and I do wonder if that's, that's where they go. Joey Porter Jr. when he's ready. I think that Patrick you see that Peters. spectacular, I mean, which one? That spectacular catch video of um, Pickens. George Pickens down the sideline, you know, going up and When he gets the 15-yard the penalty, yard throwing penalty. the ball. Into which didn't happen, space. by the way. No official. No I matter. did not. I was going to quote tweet 15-yard penalty, but I thought people would get really mad at me. For oh, being, they would. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe that would catch on. Joey Porter was the corner, though. And it was like his yeah. first day of practice or whatever. And by the way, like he's... In lockstep coverage, he just loses out at the catch point to a freak show at the catch point. Like, I would say it's always difficult when you look at these one-on-one reps, like, because there's several elements to the play when you're a wide receiver or a corner. Porter wins that rep most of the way, and then it all gets undone because Pickens wins at the most important point. Every George Pickens route, though, is he even trying to separate? But from from a Joey Porter point of view, like, that's not a bad rep. Yeah, that's, that's encouraging. Win. Most, most other receivers aren't going to make that play. Right. So, Pittsburgh. We have two more minutes left. We can't, we can't skimp on them. <laughs> I, am, I, I am real curious about the back seven, generally. And, um, they, again, Pittsburgh usually has a pretty good defense. Uh, the year, in 2020, when they had that random run where they were 11-0 or whatever it was, and the defense was very good. and like, you, never all, you don't always know when it's going to hit. But they've got the potential for it. And, you know, T.J. Watt is right up there with any of the best guys. I know Browns fans and Steelers fans love to debate T.J. Watt and, and Miles Garrett. But they're, they're both in that elite edge conversation. And, and Watt drops into coverage. They're different style players. Like, Watt's going to drop into coverage a little bit more. Uh, he has a knack for just, you know, creating turnovers in the line of scrimmage. They're a completely different defense when he's out there and healthy. However, when you guys did the injury show, like, he keeps – 
he keeps like it's all these reoccurring mm. injuries, right? For TJ Watt, can they rely? If we're going to talk about Deshaun, um, sorry, like two his injuries every year, if we're going to talk about some of the QB injuries and Lamar, is TJ Watt starting to become an injury liability where he's just destined to miss time again? Yeah, I mean it's a real concern. I mean that's that's not a an insignificant thing. I forget which is it a hip injury he keeps redoing. I think it's the groin. Uh, the like groin, the right that was groin, it. Yeah. right? Ever, multiple, over over again. multiple sort of consecutive groin injuries in the same spot is definitely, I mean, it's a red flag that something is not right with him generally, right? Now, unless they figured out what that is and how to address it and where to strengthen, it's a risk. And if got, he misses time again, we know, like, on-off splits for individual players are noisy as hell, and usually there's nothing to them, but... We've seen probably enough of it at this point to say there's something to it with T.J. Watt, and if they yeah. miss him, it it's a body blow to that defense. They got Nick Herbig, though, one of my other favorite players in the draft. Hybrid linebacker, edge rusher, could, could, could step in. So overall, let's get to the win total, but I love the depth that the Steelers have created as well. All of the AFC North teams, I love the rosters. It'll come down to Kenny Pickett. The over-under is 8.5. I'm going to say push. Push? You can't say push? 8-8-1. Eight, eight, and one. No. Can't have that. Why can't we push? Okay, you can push. I'm oh. going over because Tomlin will yeah, simply refuse to allow an under to happen. Over nine and eight. It got to be at least nine and eight here. Look at that. Time's up. I repeat the timer, and we get on to the to the next team. I'm going over for the Steelers. Can they surpass one of these other teams that we like better? Yeah, why not? Into the playoffs. Yeah, sure. I mean, look. So. The big concern is, does that offense change and does it facilitate the talented playmakers doing anything? Like, if it does, they can absolutely make noise. Now, if it doesn't, they might have some trouble. But, like, the changes should not be that hard to execute. I mean, you look at that heat map that we have of routes where they simply don't even run into the middle of the field. How about running there? Like, that's a pretty easy change to make. And Darnell Washington. Like, (laughs) Let's run some mesh here. How hard can it be? Dude, if... I know Kyle Shanahan's like the extreme, but if you had Kyle, Sh- if you knew Kyle Shanahan was calling plays for this group, you'd be like, "Wow, this is a top five offense." Mm-hmm. No matter who's under center, because of Kyle plus the playmakers. So potential is certainly there for the Steelers. All right, we're going to the NFC North now. We're halfway through, Sam. Wow. I'll say this: in Already? the off season, when we're just doing like one hour, hour and a half shows, you forget the endurance it takes <laughs> to get through our two and a half hour marathons, uh-huh. and we got to get to practice. So we got uh, 15 minutes here, starting with. The Chicago Bears. Bears are up first, 3-14 and 14 last year, but they're projected for 6.8, 6.8. this year. That's, these are uh, PFF numbers, by the way. The, yes. the ones with the decimal points that you won't find anywhere else, these are PFF-powered projections of how these teams are actually going to perform this how year. How are you going to have 6.8 wins? You're not. You're really not. You're Nobody's going to give you 0.8 of a win in the NFL. It's just going to give, give you some range here. So Justin Fields heads into year three, going into the year, uh, into the draft season. The Bears had the number one overall pick. They trade down to number nine uh, for all sorts of extra draft capital, plus DJ Moore from Carolina. Um, So a lot to be excited, I think, if you're the Bears. But you're also, you know, a third to 50% of the way through the rebuild right now, right? You're maybe 50% of the way through. You had an offseason of gutting. You had an offseason of building it back up again through the draft and a little bit of free agency, and there's probably another offseason before you start to really feel good about where this roster is, but I like a lot of what Ryan Poles has been doing in Chicago. Absolutely. I mean, this is – last season it was like, let's tear this thing down. 
around Justin Fields. I think he was set up to fail last year and in spite of that succeeded to a degree. And now this offseason has been like, okay, you convince me. You're the guy. Now we're going to surround you with talent and we're going to try and build a team around you quickly. And they've, been, they've done a pretty good job of that. Um, you can't necessarily do the whole thing in an offseason, but they've made a lot of moves, made a lot of improvements. Um, here's a test for you. You're Mr. I'll buy into any and all training camp hype every year. There have been a lot of positive reports as to just how freaky Chase Claypool has looked. Are you in? See, I think when uh, someone could criticize me for posting like Elijah Moore and say, well, he gets hyped up every year. Uh-huh. We've already seen Chase Claypool do freaky things. <laughs> yeah. His very first pass, like his first attempt, right? His first target in the NFL. He had that like subtle push-off, incredible catch against the Giants on Monday Night Football. It's like, it's a steal for the Steelers! Chase Claypool! How does anybody let the Steelers get Claypool in the second? Yeah. So not yet. I'm just saying there's, However, there's Bears reporters out there saying, I had written off Chase Claypool and he is making a believer out of me. I'll just say, Chase Claypool, and I, I, I liked where he was slotted in with the Steelers because he was always pretty much their three. As long as he's the three, let him do freaky stuff every now and then. That's fine. But he's the three. DJ Moore, Darnell Mooney. Claypool has a three. I buy. Like I like that because he's just he's not consistent enough. He's always had the freaky stuff. So I'm not, I don't think that's new information is how I'll respond to that. That's not new information. No. Just but- like, guess what? Nikhil Harry made a diving catch yesterday. Yeah. Looks great. He's made freaky plays. Right, but the re- In the NFL, in real football games. The reports around Claypool are clearly indicating that the frequency and distribution of the freaky plays is changing. Like, it's, it's gone from, hey, you can do one of these things every now and again that makes you go, oh, well, what if he did it all the time? To now, like, well, he's doing it all the time, so I thought he stank, and now I'm a believer. Like, that's the tenor of what's going on right now. If Steelers fans are in the chat, you let me know. You guys let us know. Should we buy into this, the Chase Claypool hype? I think it's fine. I mean, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I'm no, not, I, I made a buy. I said I'll buy into record. it. So I'll buy, I'll buy into all of it. I'll okay. buy into Claypool. Yeah, no, I'm not. Because Darnell Mooney's really good and DJ Moore's really good. I'm intrigued by this group. The DJ Moore edition is huge for this team. Like, that is the single most transformative move that they've made in the offseason. Like, deciding, obviously, to keep Justin Fields is the biggest decision, but then getting out of number one overall and picking up DJ Moore along the way is massive. Like, you've added a... Whatever you think about DJ Moore in terms of is he a true number one, what does that even mean? Like, there's a 10-minute conversation about the, the general concept of that ethereal idea. But... DJ Moore is a really, really good wide receiver who makes plays at all levels of the field with almost anybody as his quarterback. Adding him to Justin Fields is massive. It gives him a guy that he can be 100% certain of every play. And just to review last season, the first few weeks of the year were an absolute train wreck for Justin Fields. Remember some of the, some of the stats that the late Mike Renner, rest in peace, was putting out there. I want to give him credit. There was a point like three or four weeks into the season where Justin Fields, if he had 35 completions, he had been sacked. He had, it was something like he had, been, he had been sacked or scrambled way more than even just his completion total. Right, like the, It just didn't look like normal pass game football. There was the Thursday night game against Washington where it's Justin Fields and Carson Wentz going head-to-head. And it was just 
it was up there with that Colts Broncos Thursday night game. It was terrible. Oof. Neither team could move the ball. It was horrible. They won on like or they lost on like a tip pass or whatever it was. And then something switched where Fields all of a sudden starts looking like a dynamic runner. And the Bears start leaning into that a little bit more. Fields wasn't incredible as a passer, but that opened things up. Cole Komet, all of a sudden, he's running wide open across the field, and now he's going to get paid. Um, The whole offense changed at one point. So I'm expecting it to look a lot more like that. But it wasn't – it took a little bit of time last season. It took six or seven weeks before they figured that out. So now, can Fields, with all these added weapons, does the pass game show up there? And Fields is now getting MVP type of hype. Because you saw there were games last year where it's like, hey, it's third and two, and I'm going to run for a 68-yard touchdown or whatever. You know, unbelievable type stuff. Lamar Jackson-esque running ability that I didn't think Justin Fields had. And where I'm, where I'm intrigued is we've seen him throw the ball accurately yeah. in college. Like, when, like Lamar's accuracy was never great in college. He completed passes and everything, but he was never really precision. We saw Fields throw the ball extremely well. So that's where I think the ceiling is still extremely high for Fields because you've got freak running ability. And even if he takes a few too many negative plays as a passer, yeah, he's got the throwing ability. He can make the throws. His best throws have been those downfield uh, moon balls, Russell Wilson style. But I think Fields has the intermediate accuracy and everything. Like he's shown it before. There's a lot of potential to Fields still that I don't think we've seen. Yeah, there is. It that's that's an interesting part of it because his accuracy last year was bad, um, but we know he can be accurate. Like he, from a simple throw from point A to point B, hit a target. He was as good as anybody we've seen come into the NFL for a long period of time. Now there were concerns. Certainly, I had issues about like that offense at Ohio State and the how much it translates and just the mechanics that it I think instills in a quarterback. Like it, I think it actually creates a lot of bad habits, and I think Fields has, has been dealing with some of that. But the transformation between incredibly accurate, like laser-like ac- accuracy in college to not very accurate at all so far in the NFL has been slightly weird. And I think probably a big part of that is influenced by the fact that he hasn't had anybody to throw to, right? And so you're trying to hit, you're pushing, you're pressing harder. Now, with guys like DJ Moore, people that should be open consistently, maybe that part of it you know, relaxes a little bit and he can just pitch and catch to an open guy again, and now you start to see a better accuracy return. But the point being that theoretically, there should be a much more accurate version of Justin Fields as a passer in addition to a guy who now has better opportunities because his receivers are better and his offensive line is better. I... I I think there's a lot of reasons to think that he should be better as a a passing quarterback. Now, the one note of caution with that is another quarterback who was one of the most accurate college passers we've ever seen and has consistently been inaccurate at the NFL level is Baker Mayfield. You know, maybe maybe this is just a feature of quarterbacks that have a level and don't necessarily work out at the no NFL. i'm buying in i'm i'm getting suckered in again i saw it in college we'll see it again in the nfl and granted we we had questions about field scheme we had questions about baker's scheme and you know the ease that it gave him so maybe there's something to that um, the offensive line as you mentioned should be a little bit better i don't think there is as bad as a lot of the perception last year because fields got sacked they got better so as well a lot i mean yeah. they, they that thing improved they it were was... good in the run game and better in pass protection than people give them credit yeah for. it was absolutely 
not bad by the end of the season. Like, I wouldn't, you know, go crazy with praise, but it was an average unit by the end of the year. Um, so Darnell Wright was their ninth overall pick. Again, the uh, he was an awesome pass blocker last year for Tennessee. Has had some questions from a run game perspective, just from a grading uh, from a grading viewpoint. Even though, again, I think the Bears love his uh, toughness and meanness and all that stuff. Braxton Jones was a find last year as a rookie fifth rounder. Tevin Jenkins has settled in as one of the you know a good solid guard. So the pieces are there from an offensive line perspective to mm-hmm. be much better for the Bears. Defensively. They were also just pretty bad across the board. So this yeah. is where I think if, if you're looking at the Bears and it's like optimism on offense and optimism in year three for Justin Fields, the defense could be the thing that holds them back. Are they moving in the right direction? Definitely. I don't know if they still have enough on the defensive line or in the secondary. Yeah, so defense is an interesting discussion for them because I don't like a lot of the individual personnel moves that they've made but almost all of the ones that i don't like they they've made a lot of them though they did <laughs> but almost all of the ones that they um they made that i don't like they kind of insulated it with a backup option that i did like so and then, and then you also got the question of how do you square their approach to you know spending money in the right places like they didn't want to pay roquan smith they let him walk they traded him away uh, and we, like I said a year ago, if you rewind how to fix the Bears in 60 seconds or whatever it was, that was part of it. Get rid of Roquan Smith. Take whatever's on offer so you don't have to pay him the contract he's looking for because he cannot justify it within this defense. So they did that. And then they went and took all that money and then some and gave it to Tremaine Edmonds. You're like, well, how does that work? Um, and given Tremaine Edmonds is coming off this insane career year, way better than anything we'd seen before from him, um, I think that's kind of risky money to throw around. But then you bring in TJ Edwards for a fraction of the cost, who I think is for most of his NFL career has been a better linebacker. And all right, I think that's a good way of like insulating that potential mistake. Tyreek Stevenson as a draft pick didn't love at all, but I love Terrell Smith, who they bring later on and could potentially jump him in training camp or uh, to start on that team. Like that's still a live proposition. So like every step of the way, if when there was a move I didn't like, they kind of, not fixed it, but they potentially insulated any kind of catastrophe by bringing in a guy that I did like. But overall, you look at this and you say they've deployed quite a lot of resources, both in monetary terms and draft pick terms, and it doesn't look like they got that much better. No, they, they added a lot of depth, and you know some of these things need to hit. Tremaine Edmonds definitely coming off of a A, a lot career. of this needs to hit. A like, lot that's of it, the thing. yeah. Tremaine Edmonds coming off of a career year. Um, I think they liked his length and you know zone ability and, and all those things. Him and T.J. Edwards should definitely be an upgrade at linebacker. Um, in the secondary, okay, what needs to hit? Eddie Jackson has played good ball at, at points in his career, but maybe not as much recently. I was a big Jaquan Brisker fan. I thought he had a nice season as a rookie. They haven't gotten you know Jalen Johnson at corner, heads into year four. He's been up and down. Kyler Gordon, second-round pick, not great as a rookie. So a lot of questions. When it comes to the secondary. Defensive line-wise, look, I like what Ryan Poles has done from a process standpoint. There'll definitely be a few individual players and draft picks. I know I've talked about Gervin Dexter and Zach Pickens. And before everybody in the chat tells me Gervin Dexter was playing in a you know two-gap system where he had to couldn't get off the ball and this and that, that's fine. But it's very risky taking a low-production defensive tackle in the second round and saying, okay, we'll just teach him how to, you know, be better at producing and at the NFL level. So I like the high volume of drafting. 
we'll see what happens with a lot of these draft picks. And uh, it's going to be an intriguing year to see if the Gervin Dexters and Zach Pickens of the world on the defensive line can be a part of the future. I just think there's a lot more work to be done in the trenches for the Bears and then maybe in the secondary of some of these young players like Kyler Gordon don't develop they or seem, Terrell Smith, your boy. Right. They seem to focus a lot on players that had not that had specifically not been productive but have traits. Um, and there's definitely a world where that makes some sense. Like there are players where that is where that has succeeded. Um, traits usually work with guys who have had production. And yeah. again, my point is like those guys were available. Right. But specifically taking guys that have not been productive who have traits is just it has historically been a bad strategy, which is not to say that individually they can't work out, but if that's like your plan, you know, this is, we're going to really target these guys, like this group, this cohort of players that have been unproductive but have some traits has been historically a really bad approach to take. So maybe the Bears are able to identify like a couple of those guys that actually buck that trend and, you know, have or will produce. But as a strategy, it seems like a very risky place to put all your eggs all right let's get to the win total for the chicago bears right seven and a half who where were they last year how many did they win three three yes that's right let's get remember what did you just remember the, the, the greg gabe greg gabriel yeah i mean if you're looking for a nice crotchety follow <laughs> on twitter greg gabe a uh, chicago bears former bears gm insider expert he was, you know, he was making fun of all the people that said, Bears over unders three. And you, you idiots, they're two and one. You want the tweet? Yes. I got it. Word for word. Greg Gabe, back when they were two and one or whatever it like was. September 20th or something. The quote experts said the Bears would only win three games all year. They've won two of their first three. Do these same experts feel the Bears will go one and 14 the rest of the way? <laughs> it's classic. Turns out they good. did. It was just good. <laughs> And not because, like, look, I've been wrong before. It's just Greg's really good at just, you know, being but there's really, like, really confident about yeah, stuff. There's one, thing, there's one thing to be wrong, right? We've all got bad takes out there somewhere. There's another one to be like, to give them the tweet where it's like, ah, morons, look at you now. Like taking the victory lap after three games when there's still a sliver of a chance that it comes back to bite you in the ass and then it comes back to bite you in the ass is just perfect. Oh, that's pretty awesome. So I wonder what... Greg's probably got the Bears at 15 wins this year. He's always a glass half full type of guy. I mean, glass all the the way full. So where are you going? Seven and a half. Seven and a half. So do they need to get to eight wins? I'm going to go under. No, I'm going to go under too. Seven. They go seven and ten next year, though. I'm going to predict they go seven and ten, and in 2024, they're the favorite to win the NFC North. Hmm. Okay. Because they'll have another offseason. I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll go under, though, for the Bears. The Bears. The Lions are up next. Might see them next week. The Lions. In person. Detroit Lions. They are America's darling. Nine and eight last year. Did not make the playoffs. They're apparently not PFF projected win darlings, though. They're only at 8.79. Interesting. So PFF maybe not buying in. Well, that's because the uh, the late Dr. Eager is no longer here to cook the numbers. Yeah, he's not here to restore it. The, uh, the Lions started off really slow last year. Uh, defense was terrible. And then they started to, you know, put it into high gear and get moving. Uh, ben Johnson, great job as offensive coordinator. You loved him. You know, 
we we've talked him up quite a bit, but they just they had a lot of open throws. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Mike Sando on the show last week talking about QB tiers. He's like, "What's up with Jared Goff?" You know, every anytime his offenses do well, they give credit to the offensive coordinator. Anytime the offense doesn't do well, they say, "Hey, it's because they had Jared Goff." And it's like, well, Jared Goff's just a mid tier quarterback. He's good. He's solid. Um, playmakers are good. Offensive line is good. Defense was much better down the stretch, and they're young. This is supposed to be the Lions' year in the NFC North. It's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I continue to like the moves that they've made, you know, throughout this uh, rebuilding project. I mean, this has been a multi-year process with uh, the new regime that they brought in, new general manager, new head coach, um, and they've done, I think, a really good job. And even when they've goofed, they've done a really good job of fixing it quickly, like not letting that be the thing that derails the entire project, right? When you make a mistake and then spend the next three years either waiting for it to come good or having to you know, reboot the whole cycle again, they've fixed gaps where they've missed really well. And they did that. That was, I think, the feature of the offseason this year, like bringing in Cameron Sutton, C.J. Gardner-Johnson, Emmanuel Mosley, like for a secondary that had been a weakness and a problem, they were like, let's just guarantee a baseline of solid play. And then if we can get better than that, gravy. So... Like across the board, I think they've done a really, really good job of this. And their draft got criticized quite a lot. Uh, some of our comments made it onto their little draft video. You, me, and Renner, in fact. Even though Renner wasn't here at the time. Um, I didn't realize that that was my voice kicking it off. Yeah, you had the opening words to the video. Maybe when I played it, it, would, it already skipped over my Maybe. voice. and it, I just heard your... And then my part was, some might say misrepresented, edited in such a way that I it was left off the we positive clear comments the air that I gave. With the social team next week when we're right. in town. Absolutely. Um, but as much as like the only pick that I really had any serious issue with was the Jameer Gibbs pick that early in the draft. Um, you know, they made a big deal out of like he wouldn't have made it further. To me that's just an indication of okay, but that's just an like you then just accept that. Like, oh he won't make it to our next pick. Fine. Then you don't draft him because it's not worth it at that pick. They did, whatever, fine. They can make something special out of him in that offense, potentially. But the draft should have theoretically added a lot of quite good players that can make an impact quite quickly, which will make this team better. Um, you know, the long way around is saying it's a good, it's it's a project that's been moving in the right direction, doing a good job. And I think this offseason only poured gas on that. Like the Lions' hype, I think, should be for real. So we got Goff as a good, solid quarterback who, when you've got the right play caller and some playmakers, he's going to distribute it and, you know, you can create some offense. And that's what they have. Amon St. Brown, who has turned into one of the better possession receivers in the NFL. Uh, love the speed that they've added. Jamison Williams is suspended for the first, was it six games for him? Yeah. Um, but when he comes back, his speed, Khalif Raymond and his speed, Jameer Gibbs, we just saw him cook in a linebacker the other day, so we know he's already worth the draft pick. Jameer Gibbs, his speed. Sam Laporta, incredible athlete as their uh, early second-round draft pick. So they have they have created this offense with a ton of explosiveness and shiftiness with a good play caller who gets the ball in space to these guys and a good offensive line where left to right, Taylor Decker to Panay I won't name all the players, but Decker and Sewell, one of the better tackle duos in the league. Frank Ragnow, one of the best centers in the league. Solid guard tandem. They're kind of like the Browns on paper from an offensive line perspective. 
top three to five offensive line potential here. They're one of a, a number of teams who last year had one position group that just could not stay healthy. Um, Buffalo, it was their secondary. Like day one, it was beat up, and it never really got healthy over the course of the season. The Lions just had this revolving door on the interior of that offensive line. Like they were cycling through every single week. It seemed like they had a different guard-center-guard combination, and most of them were underperforming when it came to the backups uh, or guys playing hurt. If their starting trio stays healthy this year, that's a like that's as big as, as an upgrade as you know a team that added a really good player. If the Lions can simply have Jonah Jackson, Frank Ragnow, and Graham Glasgow or uh, Big V, Vitae, like if that if they can just get those three guys and stay healthy all season long, that's a massive upgrade for that interior. So I like the offense. Uh, the one thing we've we always have to like explain our Jared Goff takes and everything. He's had he's had similar grades. He had a similar grade last year as he did like the year that he got moved on from with the Rams. And so the on-field production for Goff has been a little bit dependent on, like I said, playmaker, play caller, and a little bit of luck. Last year he had some interception luck. Stats ended up very good. I still think Goff is solid and can execute here, but I don't think he's a guy that goes out and wins games for you, but I don't know that he has to the way the team is constructed. Um the Gibbs thing is going to be fascinating if they try to look when we if people are trying to justify the Gibbs pick um like somebody said eat that Sam when I posted the good Gibbs play overall like it doesn't matter how many plays he makes at some point it's the financial aspect of it too because the Lions can call him an offensive playmaker all they want but he's still a running back in name and will get paid higher than most of the running backs around the NFL throughout the course of his contract. That's just a tough thing to, to – it's just a tough circle to square. I mean, look, it kind of depends just how much – like they made a big deal out of like he's not a running back. He's, you know, they, they use this sort of offensive weapon or playmaker. Like that, those types of buzzwords. Traditionally, when people start saying things like that, it – doesn't usually work out i mean denard robinson was an offensive playmaker like you know usually when you start talking about people as like a unique chess piece on offense it's because he doesn't fit into a traditional spot and most nfl teams are not great at maximizing that value so i'm not saying it's a just a little bit concerning that that's like what they're talking about as a concept because i don't think teams have been very good at at maximizing that the second thing though becomes like if he is actually good enough to be a true hybrid, like let's say he's a slot receiver first, let's say who he's, can line up in the backfield. Say he's Alvin Kamara. What yeah. Alvin Kamara has done throughout his career. I mean, if he's Alvin Kamara, I think drafting him at twelve overall was too rich, right? But I'm more interested it's in close. It's close to maybe. But, but I'm more interested in what if he becomes? What if he is this true holy grail? Like what if he's Debo? That's more interesting to me. If he's Debo Samuel, a guy that can legitimately play first and foremost as a wide receiver and then go into the backfield and cook because he's got enough speed and ability to make plays in the backfield, Debo at 12 overall, easy value. No problem with that whatsoever. If he's Debo, now we've got something potentially special, and I will happily take back my criticism of it, of you don't draft a running back at 12 or that style of running back at 12. My point is more... If he's Kamara, if he's um, C.J. Spiller, like 
those guys don't go at 12 overall for a reason, and I don't think they can really justify going 12 overall, even if they end up as good NFL players, because what they're doing is not that valuable. If he's Debo, though, that's a different conversation. So that, like, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I would say if, there, if you did get Alvin Kamara type of production, I, I think Kamara is one of the guys that's, you know, been... There's like four or five running backs who have been actual real difference makers over the last few years. And now Kamara's losing some of that with injuries and now suspension, but um, that's beside the point. But even he slowed down a touch. But either way, this offense is going to be hashtag fun to watch because I do think they will move Gibbs around. He is going to be a tough cover if they, if they do lean into that. The, the tight ends, they did a great job of scheming those guys open last year, and they've just, they've just got really good athletes to cover on offense. So I'm looking forward to that. Defensively, as we said, started slow last year, got much better. Uh, it kind of coincided with Aiden Hutchinson playing like one of the better edge defenders in the league last year. You got Aiden Island, Hutch Island. Aiden Island? Hutch Island. Three interceptions last year. Uh, only player in the NFL to have whatever it was in his uh, idiot stat. They had three interceptions last year. Yes. One playing cover two corner in an end of half situation. Just no, but Hutchinson looks like an excellent pass rusher. James Houston and Josh Paschal and Charles Harris. I like their, their group. What you got? Just to put a bow on the Kamara thing, um, the highest war in a season Kamara has ever had is 0.27, uh, which there were 20, 20 something wide receivers had more than that last season. And Debo's highest has been 0.41. Yeah. So. That's the difference to me is the gap between that 0.27 and 0.41 is a significant one, even if it doesn't sound like much. Um, and that is the gap between worth taking a guy at 12 overall and probably not. Yeah, so that's the, just a little bit of the perspective there. Uh, the other stuff, defensively, Alim McNeil played some good ball down the stretch. I loved Jack Campbell as a player, even though the NFL was surprised that he went at, what, 18 mm. overall. I was a big fan of Jack Campbell stepping in there with Alex Anzalone and Malcolm Rodriguez. That linebacker. video generally was was a fascinating watch. Um, it's called, like, Inside the Lion's Den or something, if you're looking for it on YouTube. Um, it's worth watching because you get you get a very good in, uh, insight into how they were working that whole draft room throughout all three days. One thing that struck me is, like, I kind of feel like every team – the draft boards are so different that every team can come out of the draft thinking they nailed it. Yeah. Like, you know, every every pick seemed like the Lions were like, I can't believe this guy's still at the board. This is amazing. And they're like, you know, celebrating, like, get, uh, like elbowing Dan, Cam- or, yeah, Dan Campbell in the ribs, you know, in celebration. Like, they think they nailed every draft pick because they, like, couldn't believe their luck that the player they love the most – slid all the way to we're at 45 for brian branch or whatever i, I kind of feel like every team's gonna look like think the same way can you believe that this guy's still on the board like yeah because everyone else thinks he's a fifth rounder you know it's just it just struck me it's kind of funny that i think every because we're all working from blind information nobody knows how anybody else ranked the players i i feel like everybody thinks they nailed it just because yeah like the Lions That's are saying, I when I'm, when I'm like, I can't believe these model players are still there. Think Don't the they Lions, realize the hit rate? Yeah, I think the Lions are saying, was it 18 guys that they had with a first round draft grade? It was in the teens somewhere, between 10 and 20 somewhere. Um, and Brian Branch was one of them, right? He goes at 45, or whatever, and they're making cases that he might be the best defensive player in the draft, which I don't disagree with, by the way. Oh, yeah, I think but, that's all. But it's just kind of hilarious that 
there's another team out there being like Brian Branch is like a seventh rounder. We're not even looking at him, and that's why he lasts to 45. You know, it's and every and that team is probably like, can you believe that Tyreek Stevenson was still sitting here in the draft? Like this is we nailed it, jackpot, baby. So anyway, um, the biggest story I think of the Lions offseason was they needed to make the secondary better. Yep, they needed to invest in the secondary, and for relatively cheap. Brought in Cameron Sutton from the Steelers, Emmanuel Mosley from the 49ers, and C.J. Gardner-Johnson from the Eagles. Sutton has inside-outside ability. Mosley's coming off an injury, and you get him for like a one-year, $6 million flyer. Uh, Gardner-Johnson, safety, slot, hybrid. Brian Branch comes in, safety, slot, hybrid. There's a lot, as a, as a second-round pick, who might be the best defense player in the draft, as you said. Big Brian Branch fans here. Great football player. It is... Very intriguing what they've done in that secondary. Plus, uh, Kirby Joseph made some nice plays at safety last year as a rookie. It's There's a mix of youth. There's a mix of veterans. But the secondary should be much better than it was uh, the totality of last year, where, mm-hmm. again, they started really, really slow and got better as the season wore on. Yeah, the secondary was a weakness for them last season, and it shouldn't be this year. So that's that's a huge thing. You running out of juice here? No, I'm just that I I made that point already, so I'm done with it. Oh, okay, we're good. Um, going back to the pass rushers, Aiden Hutchinson. I think uh, Rick Spielman, friend of the show here, he was at practice the other day watching joint practice. Loves how uh, Aiden practices. Yeah, thinks he's double digit sack season coming up here. Double digit sack season, which means last 17 game schedule. You, know, you got more more opportunities, but uh, he loves what you saw from Aiden Hutchinson. Our grades also I mean, thought he was very yeah, good. He was grading as an All Pro on the back end of the year if he simply picks up where he left off and does it over a 17 game schedule not only we have a double digit sack year he'll be you know an all pro threat i want to see if james houston can keep the ridiculous streak that he had uh sixth round pick out of jackson state last year former gator uh 88 pass rush grade on just 92 rushes probably the best uh, 100 rush debut that we've seen since cameron wake Cameron Wake. Since Cameron Wake. Can I get, where's my uh, filter? How many actual sacks did he have? Seven? Houston? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Something like seven sacks in like seven games. Um, But it was one of those where the sacks match with the pass rush grade. Like those were real. Um, If they've got to find their undersized rusher. Eight eight sacks. Eight. On 92 pass rushing snaps. Why do we only have seven here? Interesting. Anyway. (laughs) I like what the Lions have done on the defensive line as well. So, why is everybody high on the Lions? Because they've spent a couple years building this thing up. Offensive line from nothing to one of the best. Playmakers from nothing to at least middle of the pack with a good play caller. Defensive line much better. Secondary looks more playable than anything they've had in the last five years. Let's get to the over-under here. What's the win total here for the Lions? Nine and a half. Going in hot. For the Lions. Hmm. For the guy in the chat that says we just like to trash the Lions. I'm going over. Yeah. I'm going to buy into that. It's a 10-win team. I'm buying the Lions hype. Buying the Lions hype. The NFC North's going to look good because the Lions and Vikings are both going to be good this year. Mm-hmm. Is how I'm feeling. So we're going over on the Lions. We have two more teams left. That's it. Then it's off to practice. I thought I'd be out at 1230. That's not happening. Huh? No, that was, that was optimistic. Green Bay Packers are next. We're going to go see them at practice, man. Yeah. What are we looking for with the Packers this year? Last year, so you, obviously you lose Aaron Rodgers. You do. Jordan Love. 
has taken over. Mm -hmm. Eight and nine Green Bay Packers, projected for 7.63 wins per PFF. A young group of receivers, some question marks on the offensive line, but certainly some pieces to make it good. And a defense that last year at this time, we were saying, hey, this might be the best of the Aaron Rodgers era, or at least since their Super Bowl winning team. And it was not the Very case. Very much wasn't. Whatsoever. Yeah. Not even close. But it's another, it's another case of, I that don't think that was necessarily just a crazy thing to say. And the bedrock of why people were saying it last year is still there. So it might be this year that that defense looks a lot better. So let's start on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, Jordan Love, we'll get a good look at him today. Uh, it seems like camp has been uneven for Jordan Love. You get some bad days, and then all of a sudden you get some sidearm touchdowns in the uh, broadcast uh, scrimmage that they had. Uh, Playmaker-wise, it's Jordan Love throwing to Christian Watson, who was just unbelievable last year in the second half of the season in particular as a deep threat. Romeo Dobbs, who had all of the hype last year at this time, and to me that might show up a year later right, for Dobbs. Sure where he's still a very good, sound receiver to maybe be a possession threat opposite Christian Watson as a deep threat. But it all comes down to Jordan Love, who, when we saw him in the preseason, gave you the Utah State stuff, right? Like, oh, there's a couple special throws. And then, like, here's some YOLO balls into the end zone on first down. Yeah. Line. Um, and then Love had, like, 10 really good plays against the Eagles in relief. And it's like, oh, he's turned the corner. Wait till they turn it over to Love. So one of the biggest stories in the NFL this year, Jordan Love – in the whole transition from Aaron Rodgers to the Jordan Love era. Yeah, and I feel like because we look at this, the small snippets of Jordan Love play and we see bad and we see incredibly good, we feel like he has this amazingly broad range of outcomes. Like he could be terrible, not viable, not the answer, we move on after a year. Or he could be, theoretically, he could put it all together and be the next one of these series of toolsy quarterbacks that somehow become an awful lot of a better player at the NFL level than they were in college. He could also just be a quarterback that stylistically is wildly volatile, and we're effectively looking at some version of Jameis Winston here, right? Which would tally with what he's always been, which is the thing. Like, if you look at his college career, it was one of those weird ones where, you know, he had a bad final season. His best season was the year before that, where he had a much better grade, much better numbers across the board, and then, you know, things changed around him, and he didn't respond well to that at all. But if you add, if you roll up all of his college career, you end up with a guy who had a big time throw rate of 5.5%, which is pretty high. They're, it would be very high in the NFL. It's less high at the college level where the extremes are, are wider, but it's, it's a big number. And a turnover worthy play rate of 4.2%, which is pretty large at either end. That'd be high in the NFL. That's and it's pretty down high in college as massive. well. Like, I mean, I'm just saying, like, if you had that in the NFL, you're among the worst. If no, no, you're of course. College, but, it's, but the point being, yeah. we are now we're looking at a player who is high at both ends of the spectrum. He's going to make a lot of big plays, and he's going to make a lot of bad plays, and that's kind of the player we're dealing with. And we're dealing with extremely small sample sizes every step of his NFL career. But every step, that's kind of what you see, right? It's a guy who's going to make some crazy plays. Like even that highlight reel of the, here's the 12 plays he had in the televised scrimmage or whatever. It's a bunch of bad misses. And then a crazy Patrick Mahomes-style sidearm rolling to his left type of play. It's like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty much what he is, right? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. This is a team with Aaron Rodgers, who was not terrible last year. He did not play nearly at the same level as he did during his MVP seasons. 
But he was, you know, Rodgers a little up and down, uncharacteristically threw the ball into coverage a few more times than he usually does, missed a few more throws, but all while dealing with a receiving core of just rookies, right? Young guys trying to figure Sammy Watkins early in the season and Dobbs, who we mentioned, who has to replace Devontae Adams, right? They were trying to replace Devontae Adams last year. Can they get? Can they actually be better this year by almost certainly downgrading a quarterback? I mean, do you think Love has a chance to be better than what Aaron Rodgers is at 39, 40 years old? I don't know if he's there yet. I mean, maybe he does. Surprise in the the Cinderella story of the Packers going from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers is completed with, oh, by the way, the, the, here's the gem, Jordan Love. But I think he probably ends up mid-tier to bottom-tier NFL quarterback this year. And that's why I think the win totals, et cetera, are pretty low in Green Bay. Like, I think I agree with you generally. I think the chances of Jordan Love this year being better than even Aaron Rodgers last year are fairly minimal. Like Rodgers last year, those numbers we talked about, he had a 5.7% big-time throw rate. That's pretty damn good. And one of the big uptakes was he had a 2.9% turnover-worthy play rate, which is like a percentage point higher than Rodgers typically is. He put the ball in harm's way significantly more often last year than he usually does. And then the general production was down overall, 6.8 yards per attempt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And a PFF grade of 77.5, which is like almost 15 points down on where it was when he was back-to-back MVPs. It still wasn't bad. Like, if Jordan Love hits that, that's I would say that's in the higher range of his outcomes than, like, the negative side. That would be, you know, towards the good end of his bell curve distribution range. I think there's not that much chance he does better than that. Yeah, so, again, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, kill any optimism or whatever. I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen with Jordan Love. But realistically, will he be better than just what they had last year on a team that went 8-9? and nine? That's going to be tough to do. Now, what can offset that? Offensive line health, David Bakhtiari watch. You know, Will he be back and able to put together a full season at left tackle? I think Zach Tom at right tackle in his second year looks like one of the steals of the 2022 draft. I think he'll be very good if they just give him the job, let him run with it. Uh, they've got some questions at center with Josh Myers, but Elkin Jenkins is still there. They'll be pretty good, I think, offensive line-wise. Again, pending health. And then Aaron Jones running the ball. How much do they rely on him? He's one of those guys that's just been consistently productive. And Matt LaFleur has done a really good job of scheming it up, right? As much as I think Rodgers' MVP seasons, Rodgers played really well in combination with Matt LaFleur being just a magician in the red zone, creating open throws. There's something to that, right? This offense can function if... You know, Jordan Love. We'll see what happens. Mm. If they can at least get consistent play from him. And I don't care if he misses throws. I don't want him to lose some of those. I think he's got the special in him. He's got some of those special throws. He'll miss whatever. I don't want him to lose the special. If he still has that, it's going to be an intriguing year, I think, for the Packers. Yeah, the the question will be, so I think the chances are that, that he has, the chances that he has a better year than Aaron Rodgers did last season are fairly minimal. But... The supporting cast around him should be significantly better than was around Rodgers last year because theoretically Christian Watson should be better in year two than he was in year one. Theoretically um, Romeo Dobbs should be better in year two than he was in year one and that's before you get to the additions of guys like Jaden Reed in the draft. Um, The two tight ends they drafted Luke Musgrave, Tucker Craft. Musgrave in particular has been 
getting rave reviews in training camp, etc. So the supporting cast generally around Jordan Love should be a lot better. So even if he has the same performance as Aaron Rodgers, let's say he matches him throw for throw, the results of those throws should be better because the guys he's throwing to will be better. So it's definitely not true to say that if he just matches Rodgers last year, they'll be exactly the same as they were a season ago. That should still be an improvement for this team. And then we get to the other part, which we mentioned up top, which is like, what if the defense is dramatically better than it was a year ago because they were supposed to be? All right, let's look to that side of the ball. Rashawn Gary is coming off an injury. He's just getting back to practice, but he, in the last year and a half or so of his career, has developed into one of the better pass rushers in the NFL. You got Preston Smith. They draft Lucas Van Ness as an outside backer slash, you know, inside pass rusher. So they're always rolling about three deep in Green Bay when it comes to that stuff. And Looks like they are again. Devontae Wyatt's one of the guys I'll be watching today at camp. Yeah. Last year's uh, One of last year's Georgia first-rounders who did not play a ton last year but was solid when he was out there. Kenny Clark. TJ Slayton's played pretty well up front for them. So, again, when we talk on paper, pretty good unit, especially if Rashawn Gary's back and feeling good. Yeah, I mean, huge. And, look, there were big regressions. Defensive line here. Right, and, but even beyond the defensive line, there were big regressions from a lot of players last year. Eric Stokes took a big step backwards after really impressing early in his career. I think it's a big season for Devontae Wyatt in particular. Didn't play much, you know, was barely given an opportunity. I didn't think he – I mean, he didn't even flash when he was given the opportunity. I, I felt I, – I was expecting more from him right out of the gate, even for a guy that was being limited by the number of snaps that he had. I certainly want to see a lot more from him this year, um, even independent of scaling up his workload, which should happen. Like, it's a talented group. I mean, there was a reason people were talking about it being the best defense it's ever been uh, next to Aaron Rodgers. This group should be a lot better than it was a year ago, even before you get to the guys that they've added, like Lucas Van Ness, et cetera, and whatever he can look like day one. And, you know, I wasn't wild on him as a prospect, but I think what he's good at should play. So it should be, like, he should be able to make a positive impact, even if his ceiling maybe is limited or different than, than people expected it to be. Remember Devondre Campbell at linebacker had a breakout season in 2021. He's He regressed a little bit last year. Quay right. Walker, uh, a surprise. I thought he was a surprise first-round pick after evaluating him, but a lot of the NFL liked him. He was uh, below average last year as a rookie. also got booted out of two games for pushing officials. Um, but, he, you know, if he gets a little bit better next to Devondre Campbell, to me, though, it will come down – to the secondary you mentioned Eric Stokes and his regression I, th- I think part of the optimism last year was like what year two of Eric Stokes plus Jair Alexander looking like maybe the best corner in the NFL in 2021 plus Rasul Douglas who was very good in 21 and like a very good scheme fit for Green Bay that looked like an incredible trio to go with Darnell Savage at safety who um, had a, he's had a bit of an up and down career he heads into uh, his last year with the squad so the the bounce back potential is there in the back seven across the board for the Packers linebackers corners and safeties I also think they might do they employ a slightly different brand of football not that like Rodgers didn't really throw the ball a ton for an elite quarterback are they going to lean on the run game a little bit more try to shorten games a little bit with love lean on more play action lean on Christian Watson in some big plays but also the defense right trusting the defense a little bit more in shorter games and fewer uh, you know, shootout type of situations, that could help the defensive side of the ball as well. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I have confidence generally that this 
defensive side of the ball will take a step forward and be better than it was uh, a season ago. And, I mean, these are reasons, all of these, everything around Jordan Love should be better than it was last year, I guess is the overriding feeling of this. But the entire team's potential rides on how good Jordan Love plays within that. On top of that, you know, we've, we, had the, we just discussed the Bears and the Lions. Like, the NFC North is not great. It's not like the AFC. Right. It's not like the AFC North. There'll be some, some games to steal for sure. Let's see if Jordan Love is a, is a Bears killer like Aaron Rodgers. If he owns them. I mean, did he bequeath his ownership now that he's out of the division? I think he's going to ease into ownership. Let's see what happens. Yeah. I don't think uh, – I don't know if Jordan's ready to declare that yet. So uh, Packers also high-volume draft offensively. A guy like Jaden Reed is uh, getting a lot of play, moving him around on offense. I'm intrigued by the creativity on offense plus the potential in the defense. High-volume draft by the Packers. So you might get some, some underrated performances you know, that, that kind of come out of nowhere because they've just added so much youth over these last couple of years. It, to me, it feels a bit like a transition year, but we'll see. It depends on love, man. Like if he, just, if he plays top 15 ball, they're there. If he's in the bottom third of NFL quarterbacks, they're going to struggle. So let's get to it. Packers win total. What do we have here? Oof, seven and a half. Hmm. Packers. Seven and a half. They they won eight games last year with Aaron Rodgers. Everything else around them around the quarterback should be better, but the quarterback's probably going to be worse. I'm going to go under. Okay, I'm going to go. What I went over for the Lions, under for the Bears. Uh, I'll go under too. Seven win team. Seven win love. Seven win. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see Love, though. That, the, the Eagles' 10 throws just looked a little different. They looked a little different. I get, how, I get some of the excitement with Jordan Love. I'm looking forward to seeing him this season. I mean, the Eagles' game was just his regular performance minus a turnover-worthy play, which might, not just, which might be a case. I understand. Nine drop I understand. Backs. The, the 10th drop back would have been the one that he beans right in the face I'll, of a linebacker. I'll tell you what's fun about all of it, though, is we've, we would talk for years about taking a quarterback and stashing him and developing him. Can you still do that in the NFL? And we'll, we'll learn a little bit of that. Here's this toolsy quarterback who's got some playmaking in him, and he's been sitting for a couple of years behind Aaron Rodgers. And it's year four of his career. Yeah. Can he do something here? Year four, right? Yeah. I mean, he's the uh, – yeah. yeah. It would have been his – instead of the option, it's the uh, the weird contract they made him sign. We're done. It's enough for this guy. Time's up. I got no more use for this guy. Can we get the uh, Joe Pesci? I got no more use, I got no more use for this guy. Once we get our soundboard. All right. Minnesota Vikings to wrap it up. So soon? Hmm. Vikings finished last year 13-4. and four. Projected to win 8.89 this year per PFF. 13-4 with 10 one-score wins. Is that what it was? Eight fourth-quarter comebacks. Everything by the skin of their teeth, but they made it 13-4. and four. We called for a little bit of regression in the playoffs. It happens. They, get, they, they have a disappointing loss against the New York Giants. Uh, it's going to be a, a weird one because I, I think – I think they still might be the best team in the NFC North right now. They're right Ooh. there with the Lions to me. Interesting. But Kirk Cousins is the best quarterback in the division. Yeah. Fields could 
could get there from a playmaking standpoint. Uh-huh. Goff could get there statistically. Well, Lions fans will think Goff is. Goff could get there statistically, but I think Cousins is the best quarterback in this division. Yeah. In addition to the best non-quarterback, maybe in football, in Justin Jefferson. Solid offensive line. We'll see what happens with uh, Jordan Addison, wide receiver two and everything with Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And some sneaky good moves across the board on this roster. But they lose a lot of players as well. Yeah. So this is going to be an interesting, like the old football adage that it's, it's a young man's game. And through the years as football fans, there's been a lot of teams who might lose some big names and they replace them with a year two player or a rookie or whatever, and, they, and they're still fine. It's kind of what the, the, the Vikings are hoping for this year. Well, for the first time in quite a while, the Vikings are clearly moving in a different direction. Like the, 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 the analogy I used before of, you know, charting a course through the ocean. Like if you're going in the wrong direction at some point, you need to change course. Otherwise, how do you expect anything to change? They have clearly changed course for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, they've moved on from Dalvin Cook when they didn't need to. They moved on from Zadarius Smith, trading him away. They didn't move on um, from Donnell Hunter. They gave him uh, a deal to keep him around, and they've you know, made some other moves here or there. But the question is, where is this new course actually taking them right now? And that, I think, is a little bit less uh, clear. They have at least recognized that the previous course was heading in the wrong direction, but I'm not 100% certain yet whether they've identified what the right direction is or if they've simply decided let's just change direction because we're definitely heading in the wrong direction and then we'll figure out if we're heading in the right direction from that point on. Because you look at the roster and it's like, I mean, yeah, look, there's some good things there. This should be a good offense, right? Kirk Cousins plays at a high level however much you want to debate you know, exactly where that level lands. He's now throwing to Justin Jefferson, who's one of the best receivers in the NFL, if not the best. K.J. Os- KJ Osborne is a pretty useful player. Jordan Addison, I think, should make an impact right away, is an exceptional route runner, even if you're a little bit concerned about you know size, speed, driving 140 miles an hour, all these things. Um, Alexander Madison— speed, not driving speed? Yeah. Alexander Madison has shown the ability to deputize fine for Dalvin Cook in the past. They have other running backs there that can do that as well. TJ Hawkinson, a tight end. Like, this is a good group. Still have some concerns about the interior of that offensive line, but it should be a good offense. And then you have the defense, which is like, what are we building here? Some of Kwesi's moves, though, I think from a tactical standpoint are going to be interesting. So they they made a trade for TJ Hawkinson last year Mm -hmm. and decided – We'll give up a second-round pick. I forget what the other terms were, but basically a second-rounder, right, for Hawkinson, who they're going to have to pay. And uh, within games, we saw there were games where Hawkinson had 10 catches and became the target opposite Justin Jefferson, and that was needed. Uh, Kevin O'Connell's been uh, supposedly pushing the importance of the tight end to Kwesi from a team-building standpoint. So not only did they do that, knowing that Hawkinson's going to have to get paid here, Josh Oliver also, as a backup tight end, makes $7 million. So I think we're looking at a lot of two tight end sets. Josh Oliver, um, I think, has a little potential as a pass catcher. is a good, pretty good run blocker. So we're talking two tight end sets. Tactically interesting to me. Moving on from Dalvin Cook, replacing him with next man up, Alexander Madison. Tactically interesting to me because these are on-paper moves that say, hey, just throw the next running back in there. Who cares? doesn't matter if Dalvin Cook's a bigger name. Um, and then you've got... As I've said on a couple other shows, a one-year flyer on a Marcus Davenport who play-for-play 
top 10, top 15 type of edge defender. You're going to get a one-year flyer from him. He's never played more than 530 snaps. Can he have a 700-snap productive season opposite Danell Hunter, who they just brought back, restructured his contract? That's a sneaky good group of edge rushers. Then you get this defense that, as a unit, was not good last year. But Brian Flores comes in with a completely different scheme. And a lot of times the scheme change is kind of all you need to get, get back to average. If they do get back to average, as our friend uh, Greg Rosenthal, by the way, on Twitter, is uh, you know from around the NFL and a listener of the show, of course, as I've always mentioned, mm. use the phrase "creep back toward average." Have we not trademarked that? Do we not get I, royalties or something? I responded with a TM. I feel like that that locks it in. Oh yeah, just so, putting on a Twitter. X. So he'll send a check soon. Oh, okay. Presumably. <laughs> but he used the phrase, if the Vikings can creep back toward average defensively, yeah. might be higher on him. I think uh, I'm being convinced. I'm, I'm drinking the purple Kool-Aid this offseason. Yeah. I'm going to be a little higher on the Vikings than most. I kind of like what the potential is, even though when you read the names, I'm a big read the depth chart and project them and stuff. I'm, that's, that's how I, I, I don't love it, but I'm going to be a little higher on him. And there's one other thing. Ivan Pace Jr. What? Undrafted free agents rolling with the ones. <laughs> okay. Awesome linebacker out of Cincinnati. Underrated player. He should have been drafted. Might have a fine there. Yeah. Just, I mean, as, as I applaud your uh, acceptance that you are drinking the purple Kool-Aid, I would simply bring up that etymologically, I, that phrase doesn't have the, the most positive, you know, origin. It's not necessarily a good thing to be doing, you know? Yeah, I understand what I'm saying. Okay. Well, Kool-Aid McKinstry is coming out this year, too, he by is. the way. Yeah. And Kool-Aid generally, that's not tainted, is pretty good, particularly the purple stuff. Mm-hmm. So, the I'm buying into the Vikings. Stuff. How about it? Is that better? Sure. Not that they're going to win 13 games. That's what's weird, right? Like, the normal analysis is... They overachieved, they won 13, they're going to regress. So are you buying into them basically going back to being what they always are, which is like a slightly either side of 500 team who's probably over. They might be like a real 10-7 and seven type of team, <laughs> but a real 10-7 and seven, that's better when they get into the playoffs. You know what I'm saying? Like when they, they might okay. be 10-7, and seven, and I might feel much better about them at 10-7 and seven going into the playoffs than I did last year at 13-4. and four with, with Maybe they can win some games. But this is kind of like what I mean about this idea of we've changed course, but we might still be lost in the ocean. Like, the, I'm buying into them to be what they've always been for the last, like, five years, other than last year where they caught the, the good end of variance and won all these close one-score games and ended up with 13 wins. Like, they're, they're functionally the same team, again, despite changing things, which is slightly weird. It takes time. So, but it does. So the defense is the thing I'm most interested about. Like, the offense is the thing that hasn't changed that much other than letting go of Dalvin Cook and trying to, you know, reset, reset the – the contracts and the, the salary cap situation and that kind of thing. The defense, though, is where it gets really interesting because they've had a lot of turnover. And maybe the most important change is at coordinator, where they've gotten rid of Ed Donatel, whose scheme was kind of disastrous last year, and brought over Brian Flores, who has traditionally run a like 180-degree opposite type of scheme to the one Donatel was running. Like heavy man coverage, most man coverage in the league type of uh, scheme versus a very zone-heavy system. So now we've got all these incumbent players that were already there playing in this zone scheme have to play something completely different. And 
fairly different to anything any of them have run, um, certainly the ones that have been there for a period of time. You've got... That's Ar- where Ivan Pace fits in well because he's an incredible blitzer. Right. The way Flores likes to send his linebackers, that in particular is intriguing to me. Then you've got... Um, so you're saying, okay, what are Quazy's moves personnel-wise? What has he been doing? Like, arguably, all of his most important defensive draft picks have yet to do anything. I mean, Lewisine last year broke his leg, but he's not running with the ones yet. Um, you've got uh, Andrew Booth Jr., the cornerback. Again, injuries, injuries have been an issue for him, also not running with the ones. Makai Blackman, a guy we really like this year, uh, drafted might be getting to the stage where he's running at the ones, but like generally speaking, the picks that he's made to come in and fix this thing are not factors yet. Yeah, I mean, that's for all my uh, buying in, not Kool-Aid drinking, yeah. buying into the Vikings. The scariest part is the cornerback depth chart in a system that's going to rely on them. So, yeah, yeah th- when I'm watching the Vikings this year, and even in the preseason might tell a little bit, but not really. Right. How, how are they going to roll out there schematically? Is Flores going to ease into his ability to play man coverage because there's just nobody with any kind of track record on the cornerback depth chart right now? As much as we did like Makai Blackman, the other guys are Caleb L. Evans, Jawan Williams, former Patriot who's rarely been on the field, Andrew Booth who you mentioned is you know early second-round pick who hasn't done much yet, Tate Gowan, nobody. There's nobody with any sort of track record. No. So are you going to be able to play man coverage with those guys? Byron Murphy, who you know probably play the slot, but you could move around a little bit. So that could be an obvious concern for the Vikings. Yeah. I'm just saying we've seen historically sometimes the scheme change just makes just just makes it a little better than it was. No, there's definitely and it's something. hard to not like last year. Some of the grading on players was fine. Like, they actually had a decent pass rush last year in Minnesota, like off the edge with Hunter and um, Sedarius. Some of the players played well. Schematically, though, we saw Daniel Jones had an ocean to throw into. There were five quarterbacks last year. I remember looking at this. Five or six quarterbacks last year had their best game from a PFF grade standpoint against the Vikings. Mm. Mac Jones and Jared Goff and Daniel Jones and... Uh, Dak, I think. like They all had their very best game against the Vikings. It's unlikely that... I, I don't think that was just the defensive depth chart. Not that it looks that much better this year, but I don't think that was just the depth chart. Like That's changing this year. So I'm expecting creep back toward bottom 10 <laughs> for the Vikings as a unit. No, there's definitely value to simply removing the, the thing that was problematic last year. Like, the scheme was clearly not working. It was entrenching bad play, and it was definitely contributing to what you just talked about. So, removing that as a factor should make it better. Like, this is, it's like the Urban Meyer thing, right? Simply not having Urban Meyer as your head coach anymore will make the team better. Now you get, okay, well now, that's your baseline. Now what does Doug Peterson add on top of that? So that's the question for the Vikings. Like, removing the Ed Donatel defensive scheme was something that needed to happen. Now you're completely changing the type of defense that those guys are going to be running. Does that move that baseline, the new baseline, up or down? So the baseline should go up from not having Ed Donatel in there. But then does adding Flores make that go up or down given like a polar opposite scheme to what these guys were running? And how much? Like that, I think, is a, an open question. I mean, this is completely unrelated, but it feel, if – Stephon Gilmore got traded to the Cowboys this offseason. If you just added like a Stephon Gilmore to this defense 
and pushed everybody down the corner depth yard and have the familiarity with Flores, I'd be just that one move, which doesn't exist, but just that one move would help a lot for the Vikings, right? They don't, but they just don't, they don't have that number one corner to lean on. So I'm interested to see what they do defensively. Um, just to circle back to the offense really quick. When I'm looking at offensive lines, when four-fifths of the offensive line you feel pretty good, pretty good about, I think the Vikings might be in that spot. Garrett Bradbury got better. Mm. He's at least average now at I center. I feel good about it, two or feel three good about three-fifths. The two tackles, Darisaw and uh, Brian O'Neill. Yeah, and Ezra I feel, Cleveland. Feel good about them, but you I, but you do this historically because Ezra Cleveland had a slow start to his career, and so did Bradbury. You, you forget that those guys get better, much like your DTR takes. They've gotten I mean, better. Ezra Cleveland in. has never had a pass blocking grade above fifty five. He's a good run game though. Okay, good run blocker. But yeah, Kirk Cousins was getting his ass kicked last year. You need somebody to actually hold up and pass block. Three fifths of the offensive line though, still <laughs> feel. I don't know. They'll be solid. I think that's They'll be solid generous. Enough. I mean, Ed Ingram was problematic last year. Ezra Cleveland has never been good as a pass blocker. And as much as Bradbury was better last year, he still wasn't good and is still kind of vying for the job with Austin Schlotman. That was one of Kwesi's first moves, wasn't it? Yeah. That's what I, I feel like he's got some like secret, random, undervalued players like Schlotman and Josh Oliver, and we'll see what happens. I would just Those make guys. the point that I don't, I don't think it would be tremendously difficult to upgrade any of the three interior offensive line spots. But I'm, I'll be watching wide receiver too, man. Adam Thielen got older, and they moved on from him. Jordan Addison replacing him. So that's like the story of the Vikings this year is Jordan Addison replacing – and Adam Thielen. My number one receiver. Brian Asamoah or an Ivan Pace replacing an Eric Kendricks, right? Like all of these uh, re- replacing a Darius Smith, replacing some of these higher priced players with younger players or unproven players. And if they get decent production out of those guys, they'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Time's up on the Vikings. Let's get to the over under here. They're at eight and a half. A 13 win team is at eight and a half. Yeah. I'm taking the over. On the Vikings this year. Taking the over. Yeah. Eight and a half, nine. Okay, yeah. I'll buy that. Over. Yeah. Nine. Regression. Nine. Regression, but still maybe, you know, I think it's them and the Lions in the NFC North. Do we pick division winners in this one? Apparently not. We'll make our picks. We'll do our picks in our own show. Don't forget, send us bets. We had people asking. NFL podcast at pff.com. NFL podcast, pff.com. Send in bets for the season. When we make a terrible take, you just you know tell us the opposite. Tell us where we're wrong. Put your name to it. Um, and somebody's going to have to hit that thumbs up because there's only 79 right now. We need that to be mm. the 500 that are watching. There should be Pretty 500 rough. thumbs ups right here on the show. 500 thumbs ups. I wonder what that would do to the algorithm. You know? I think it helps. If we just thumbs immediately ups. got 420 more thumbs ups, what would that do? They help a lot and just the uh, the chat. I think helps. The interaction hmm. helps a lot. So you, you crap on Walt. He's out here propping up the podcast. No, we owe Walt. We owe Walt for keeping it lively. <laughs> keeping it lively, for sure. Man, it's a, it's a tough one. I'm not in it's, it's the preseason for everybody. I'm tired. Are you tired? Not yet. I feel like I w- Have you seen the weather report, by the way? Is it going to rain? Yeah. I was going to walk to practice. That would be bad. In the rain, sure. Yeah. yeah. Not going to cancel it on. Well, we get the indoor bubble now. Did they move it into the bubble? Can we go to the bubble? Will they let us into the bubble? Or they can like, get to the bubble. No media. It's right there. Lot. The bubble that Joe built. Bubble Never existed until Burrow showed up no. in the town. 
All right, well, thanks to everybody for tuning in. That was our first preview. We're a quarter of the way through the league. We're not going to do them all in order, but you'll see them slow roll out. AFC and NFC North today. Let us know which divisions you want next, and we'll do that. We, we love you, Walt. We appreciate the interaction. We really do. He's not a bot, as someone said. He's not a bot. <laughs> Look at you, just week on week trying to get back in Walt's good graces. Yeah, because maybe I've been harsh. Like podcast memes guys saying maybe I'm too harsh <laughs> through his memes. <laughs> Be nice to Walt. Uh-huh. Oh, Bengals practice. It's coming up. Yeah. Time to go. All Great. right, thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back again tomorrow. More PFF NFL podcast.